Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. This is going to be a tough one to remember. That song was called The Night Stalker. It's by a group called The Night Stalker. It's from a 2017 EP, The Night Stalker, which is available on Apple Music. I so you think say, you can remember that? I thought you were going to say available on Night Stalker Records. <laughs> well, so. yeah, maybe. I didn't go that far. How are you doing? We're through the holidays. Did you survive? You barely did. I barely did. I got sick a little bit over the holidays. I I, I wasn't down for the count, but you know, I, I had a few days and a few things that had to get bumped. So I am feeling much better. Good, good. I'm feeling good too. I just had some dental work though. My mouth's a little numb. So if uh, I think I sound normal, but I'm going to blame any mistakes or errors on that, that my mouth is numb from dental work. Well, let's call this, well, yeah, let's call the meeting to order. Then we'll explain what we're going to talk about. How about that? That sounds good. All right. So welcome to this month's episode of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. This is episode 40. Our, our... Wow, my age. <laughs> our three-year and one-month anniversary. Yes. There we go. Yeah. So why did we play the Night Stalker? Why was that our song? We are going to be talking about Mr. Carl Kolchak this month, the Night Stalker himself. We're going to be taking a look at the first two movies, the Night Stalker and the Night Strangler. And then we randomly picked two episodes of the television series to talk about Lucky Number 7 and Lucky Number 13, or Unlucky 13 as the case may be. So we're going to be, and I think, talking a little bit about maybe some of the. I've got a few notes about post television series and. 2005, I think, reboot that they did. Just a few notes randomly. Basically, everything we can come up with about Carl Kolchak. Cool. Cool Kolchak. Indeed. That should be fun. Well, let's see uh, if we've got any old business here. We do have some new members in our Facebook group page that, uh, for those of you who don't know, is uh, on Facebook, The Classic Horrors Club Podcast. Um, just uh, request for membership and we are not choosy at all we will allow anyone into the group we've had some great conversations we get feedback from the show there and we invite you to join that facebook group we have three new people well two people and an entity that are our members this month so welcome to scott walker kevin zimmerscheid and the boys and ghouls film review podcast 
Welcome to the club, boys and ghouls. <laughs> Had to go there. Yes, we are, we are glad to have you in the conversation. You may also participate in the conversation by leaving us a voicemail, which we invite you to do, and call 616-649-2582. That is 616-649-CLUB. Yes. Also, you can email us at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. Smoke signal, carrier pigeon, anything. We would love to have you participate in the show. That's why at the end we always tell you what we're doing in the next meeting or the next episode because we invite you to watch the things ahead of time and then uh, leave us some feedback. Pretend like you are participating live in our meeting and we, I don't believe we have not shared any feedback that we've received i don't think so i think we share everything uh and and things that uh conversations on facebook what have you you know one thing we didn't share our names we didn't introduce <laughs> ourselves oh yeah yeah just because i called you richard people don't know well you know it's 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 uh it's it's been a while holidays people might have forgotten this is richard chamberlain speaking and you can find me at kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com And I'm Jeff Owens. You can find me at classichorrors.club and DC Comics Guy and then a new thing that I started which I'll talk about at the end. How about we do that? That sounds good. But oh. you know, we have to introduce ourselves because there could be first-time listeners yes, out yes, there yes. wondering who the these these two gentlemen are with the melodious voices the, the the voices made for radio what qualifications do they have to talk about Kolchak the Night Stalker I mean come on so yeah I always forget that you know I just uh, assume that we're known worldwide not quite there yet I'm approaching it are you well you know we we have expanded the reach of of the podcast we're no longer the Kansas City gruesome twosome. I don't know what we call ourselves, but you're you're up north, and, and we're now several states uh, between us. So we, we're we're stretching that that club, uh, the clubhouse. We have we have we truly do have a clubhouse north and a clubhouse south. Uh, we will be recording uh, up north at the clubhouse north sometime in the future. Yes, and, and for those of you that worried because there was going to be a, a move involved, uh, here we are together recording another. We're not doing it three months ahead of time. Uh, we're just doing it a couple weeks before airtime. So it, we are continuing. We uh, have every intention of doing that. And it's good to be here in person. And I haven't seen Richard in five weeks, maybe? Almost a month and a half, actually. Oh, my gosh. I think. But who's counting? Well, I think that the key thing is we're going to record this, as we always have, in the same room, looking at each other. I think we feed off of each other, and so we, we toyed with the idea of doing it over the phone, and I just don't think that would have worked for us. Yeah, so. we may have to sometime, but we're not, we haven't even discussed that yet. It has not become necessary yet. We could always meet in Des Moines. We could meet somewhere. We could meet at Zombie Burger and record an episode at Zombie Burger. That's that right. sounds like a road trip we need to do. Yeah, yeah. So back to what I was saying, if just because there is no feedback for today's podcast does not mean we are excluding any. It just means, sadly, we did not get any. So uh, again, we invite you to call and, and leave a voicemail. Uh, we enjoy hearing ourselves talk, but wouldn't you all like to hear a couple of different voices? So g give us a call, and uh, we've been known to honor somebody's request for an episode that they'd like to hear. Uh, so we're very open and, and willing to include other people and, and really build the club-type 
atmosphere. I think the thing to encourage is that because our recording schedule is going to be a little different, don't hesitate calling in and leaving a voicemail over maybe a topic we talked about a month or two before, because it's very likely we're recording this as the Count Yorga episode just went live. So we're about a month ahead of schedule, peeling back the curtain a little bit. So someone could listen to the Yorga episode, leave some feedback, and we won't play that until the March episode. There's absolutely no problem with that. We want to hear from you. Uh, We'll talk about uh, episode one, King Kong, if someone has some feedback on that. Our recording schedule is a little different, but we still want to hear from people. Call and let us know how we're doing, your thoughts, anything you want to talk about. And likewise, if you do hear some feedback at the end of this segment, it is because we got some after we recorded, and we want to include that as soon as we can. Right now, as we record, there isn't any. There very well could be, and if so, you're going to hear that very shortly. And it may be that we uh, will include it, and then we may not comment on it until the next episode. So, uh, Or I might go rogue and comment it on my by myself you might you might might do that you might do that or maybe i i will i'll call in and leave a voicemail leaving my feedback on someone else's voicemail that would actually be kind of funny (laughs) we talked about doing something like that and i think that's almost funnier yes yes hi jeff and rich it's chris franklin i hope my car isn't too road noisy i'm calling on my commute home uh i am hands-free so uh, i'm being safe uh I just wanted to call while I could and uh, uh, get some feedback. Uh, I've been really enjoying the show. Just haven't had a chance to call in in a while. Uh, listen to your Count Yorga episode today. Um, you know, I saw those movies a while back. I got that uh, one of those Midnight Madness uh, double feature DVDs several years ago. Watched those for the first time, and I really enjoyed them. I don't know how they'd hold up to a repeat viewing. I haven't watched them since, but I found myself really liking them. Because I've heard about them for years, and I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I remember hearing that one of the main reasons Hammer did Dracula 80, 1972, and the Satanic Rites of Dracula, and that they moved the Dracula franchise into the present, was because of the success of, of Count Yorga. Uh, basically, you know, they basically setting a, a Dracula or a vampire movie in a modern setting kind of made the, uh, the Hammer films seem outdated, uh, which I don't really agree with. But I love Dracula 1972 and Satanic Rites in its own way, so I didn't really mind. Um, kind of surprised to hear you guys kind of bag on Marianne Hartley. I always kind of liked her. Uh, but my wife loves the Star Trek episode, All Our Yesterdays. She wanted to name our daughter Zara Beth. I talked her out of it. Maybe that makes me a bad geek, but I just thought it'd be kind of weird for her growing up. Uh, so we went with a little something a little more traditional. Uh, but, again, you guys do a great job. Always enjoy hearing what you got to talk about. Night Stalker, I can't wait to hear that. I have never seen those first two TV movies. They've never re-aired when I could watch them. Sci-Fi didn't show them. MeTV doesn't show them. I've got to get those Blu-rays. As far as the episodes of the TV series go, one of my favorites is the zombie one. I know it's on a lot of people's lists, but just the whole sewing the mouth shut with the salt and everything. I mean, it's like real, real Haitian zombies, you know, not brain-eating zombies, so i got to give them points for that. And it's just, I love Darren McGavin, love that show, so I can't wait to hear that episode. Guys, keep it up, and I'll keep listening. This is Chris. See ya. Bye. Well, I don't want to go off on a, a tangent or down a rabbit hole. Do you have a highlight from the holidays that you want to share? Did you see a, a good 
classic horror movie or, or do something, get anything maybe from Santa that was particularly relative for the podcast? Uh, I did. Up there is Godzilla. Um, I knew I was getting it, but uh, I had to wait. It was in the house about a month and a half, <laughs> hidden somewhere. And I didn't even attempt to look because Carla said, don't even try. But yes, I got the Godzilla Criterion set. I think way back several months ago now, I hem-hawed a little bit about it. Uh, I haven't seen anything from it yet, but I gotta say, it's it's a very unique packaging. Um, it's you know coffee table size book with some really cool artwork and every there's you know there's a written article about every movie, giving some facts and figures about it. Uh, a nice selection of extras. Um, so you're going to be able to see Raymond Burr and Godzilla, King of the Monsters, if you so desire. Not every English dub is included, um, which I'm okay with. I've got others on DVD. I'm going to be keeping some of those. And it's a really nice set. And actually, that's going to be something that Carla and I are going to be diving into this year. You know, I watched over 400 movies in 2019. And I, I, we've already talked about 2020, we are going to watch less movies because there's some TV shows we're really wanting to dive into. Much like The Night Stalker, we're, we're actually working our way through the whole series now that we've started. We're also started back in the beginning of The Six Million Dollar Man. Some of these things that uh, both her and I love, we're, we're diving into. But Godzilla is on the list. Um, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. She is not 100% a Godzilla fan yet. She's enjoyed some of what she's seen with me. Like, she did enjoy Mothra and, and Rodan. Ghidra, the three-headed monster, not as much. Um, so I think she'll enjoy some of the earlier ones. I think by the time we get to the 1970s, I might lose her a little bit when we start seeing Godzilla dance a jig. <laughs> Or when he talks in that one, that might be too much for. Her. But that's uh, that's probably the one of the coolest things I, I got over the holidays that was uh, film related. And I did use a gift card actually to purchase some movies post Christmas. I got some Barbara Steele films: Revenge of the Blood Beast and Nightmare Castle and Castle of Blood and Terror Creatures from the Grave. Got those on Blu-ray. So uh, that was uh, kind of a, a post... Actually, I think that might have been a birthday gift, actually, that I used post-Christmas. So what about you? I, well, before I say, I want to say I like how you have the Godzilla displayed. You have it on the top of one of your DVD shelves, you know, leaned against the wall so you can see it. I have mine just... I mean, I should put it on the coffee table, but it's just on my bookshelves, filed like a book. So that's not good. You can't see that cool sort of retro artwork. So I like what you did with that. What did I get? Um, I got a. We drew names in my family, and uh, my niece actually got me. But you know, the nice thing about that is you just when you draw names, you include your list, so you get things that you want. So I got a. Um, oh, there's the. Uh, I don't know if it's Terror Tunes or what. They're those little action figures where they've taken a monster and made it kind of cartoony uh -huh. so i got the michael myers one of that i just like the look of it it's like a looks like a scooby-doo villain you know <laughs> in, instead of like michael myers so i like that uh and i got a book called um death count which is a sort of graphic novel type approach to chronicling every murder in the friday the 13th franchise <laughs> 
So awesome. uh, that's going to be fun to look at. Um, so those were my two big horror things. A little um, unconventional, I guess. Nothing like the Godzilla. I should say that it's been a little while ago now, um, but I, I finally added uh, Info Gothic oh, to, to my collection. That was a birthday gift that I finally got. It was on my wish list, and I finally got that. So uh, I've been kind of uh, working my way through that. Awesome. So I know... Uh, Alistair Hughes is a yes, listener. So. and a member of the Facebook Absolutely. group. Absolutely. So uh, give him a plug there. That's uh, an amazing, uh, fun little book. I mean, that's, that's just, uh, I know a lot of work went into that. So just when you think you know everything about Hammer Films, you don't. And uh, you should check that out, definitely. That was a fun little thing I got. I, You know, my, my family knew me well, so I had my wish list, and, and uh, I, I got all sorts of Fun stuff on you know from the list, so I have to I have to say that uh, it was a it was a good Christmas. It, it was a good aside from the illness, it didn't knock me out totally. Although it did delay my Star Wars viewing by what uh, a week and a half, unfortunately. So I did finally see that this past weekend, almost two weeks actually. I guess it was two weeks after the premiere. Let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about the Night Stalker. Introduce myself. My name is Kolshak of the Daily Chronicle. Kolshak reports the bizarre, the supernatural, the unexplainable. You will get it, another crazy story. This nut thinks he is a vampire. You know what I call that? Irresponsible yellow journalism. He has killed four, maybe five women. I saw that so-called super killer wipe up the streets with your so-called police force. They don't want any help from amateur bloodhounds like you. I've been a reporter for 22 years. I've been a police officer for 30. Well, then why don't you retire? Each man in the field is issued one of these and uh, one of these. Are you suggesting that we pound one of these into Scorzini's chest? No, no, into his heart. Darren McGavin. The Night Stalker. Carl Kolchak, a persistent and relentless investigative reporter in Las Vegas, believes that recent serial murders have been committed by a vampire. He defies his editor, Tony Vincenzo, and spars with the police in order to prove his theory. Our first movie, The Night Stalker, aired on ABC television as the movie of the week on January 11th, 1972. And it was fit into a 90-minute time frame, so it runs about 75 minutes. Similar to kind of what The Six Million Dollar Man did. The first three movies of The Six Million Dollar Man were 75-minute films, and then it got picked up by a series. It's kind of what we have with Night Stalker. They did two movies, and then it got picked up by a series... And the Night Stalker, of course, kicking it all off, also similar to The Six Million Man, based on a book. However, when the movie comes out, it was not a published book yet. Based on the book The Kolchak Papers by Jeff Rice, uh, unpublished novel, and later did get released. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but it, uh, after the second movie... Um, he did an adaptation, and then it was released, and then it did eventually get released as the Kolchak paper. Oh, we'll talk about that now. Jeff Rice, he wrote an adaptation of the second movie we're going to talk about, The Night Strangler. That was released in 1974. 
And then both books were then published by Moonstone, which is a company we'll be talking about later. They published it in 2007 under the name The Kolchak Papers. When The Kolchak Papers, the original novel, was released, they had renamed it The Night Stalker and put a picture of Darren McGavin on the cover to kind of sell it. Nonetheless, Jeff Rice was kind of the creator of Kolchak, and there was a, a bit of contention because it was based on an unpublished novel. I don't think he originally got credit for creating Kolchak, and he had to kind of go to court when the series was being ordered. Um, he wasn't getting compensated accordingly, and he had to go to court, and then did eventually. He won that court case, and, and I believe his name was attached. I'm not sure if it was attached to the series, but I, I do believe that he's been given credit after the fact for creating the character of Carl Kolchak. Uh, and he may have been added to the series. I, my, I don't have that in my notes, but it may not have been originally when the series started. Uh, his name might not have been attached because I know there was some changes from the original broadcast when they, when they dived into the series. The first two episodes of the series, it was simply called The Night Stalker, and then they added the name Kolchak. And I think now, as you watch those episodes, we see Kolchak the Night Stalker. But that's not how it was originally broadcast. This is not my first time viewing of the Night Stalker. I'm curious, though, what, what your first time viewing was. Mine was not in 1972. However, it was on the CBS late movie when Kolchak really... I think that's where its popularity really kind of soared. The first two movies were hugely successful. The series was not for reasons we'll talk about. But when it got on the CBS Late movie, although the first two movies that we're talking about now weren't included, the series was, minus some episodes which were excluded, it got it was hugely popular. And CBS played it on and off as part of their Late movie schedule for a decade. Uh, what was your first time viewing Culture? I saw it when it first aired in 72. I would have been a young nine-year-old person who was eating up this type of thing at that time. I remember distinctly watching it and being terrified by it. It stuck with me for many years. I have oftentimes placed it on lists I've done as one of the best vampire movies. I love this movie. However, when I watched it most recently, well, actually not this viewing, but the viewing before, I did The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler, I actually, and we'll talk about this more in the next segment, I kind of prefer The Night Strangler. And I'll, I'll explain why there. But, but that does... I, I don't mean to discount this, because on its own it is very good. How did you just like it? Well, you know, I, I really enjoy it. And, and having just started re-watching the Six Million Dollar Man series, I, I, there's comparisons as far as, like, development. Because... The Kolchak you see in the first two movies is slightly different than what you get in the series, a little bit. There's development, you know, the character you see in the first movie is tweaked a little bit by the time you get to the second movie. Vincenzo, I think, stays pretty consistent. I mean, you see him in the first movie and that's pretty much how he is. There's just certain aspects about Kolchak's character that is fine-tuned over the course of the first two movies by the time you get to the series. It's it's very similar to Six Million Dollar Man. Steve Austin is really different in those first three movies. By the time he gets to the series, they've they've fine tuned his character, and then then he's pretty much going forward. He's the same type character, you know. And and again, 
these these movie of the week, these seventy five minute movies, not unheard of that there was a, you know pilots for for series. I mean, it, that's how Wonder Woman started was was a a movie of the week. There was of course another Dan Curtis uh, production, the Norlis tapes was an attempt for a, a series that I wish they would have made one for that one. So it does happen a lot of times that, that you know, a movie of the week ends up getting picked up for either a second movie or a series, and you have to fine-tune the character. I do see what you're saying, though. There's aspects of the second movie that I like a little bit better than the first. And I'm not... I wonder... It'd be, I'd be real interested to know what parts of the second movie are part of the original broadcast and what parts are of the extended European cut. The movie was originally 75 minutes long, like the first film. The version that we have now on Blu-ray and DVD is 90 minutes. It's the extended Mm. European cut. So there's an extra 15, 16 minutes of footage. I don't know which footage has been added. I wonder, though, if, if that additional footage played a big part in enhancing the film and making it you know stretching out the story just enough to enhance it and make it better than the first hmm. that could be i i have some other reasons too i'll save for there but i back to what you said about kolchak developing if you take kolchak out of the night stalker honestly and and maybe the location because las vegas is kind of unique but it really is a pretty typical vampire story. I don't know that there's a lot that's unique about that aspect of it. But you add in Vegas and you add in Kolchak, that's what makes it, to me, a unique vampire movie. I think that's common with, with you know, a lot of, you know, B-horror films. Sometimes it's a character or two or a location that makes the movie memorable. The monster may not be... The plot may not be, but you have maybe sometimes the comic relief. You know, sometimes the one of the sidekicks or something can be humorous and, and enhances the film. Sometimes it's a particular location. You know, I, I'm thinking of a lot of movies in the 30s and 40s that are generally speaking, if you take Boris Karloff out of a lot of those mad scientist films, what are you left with? A forgettable film. You put Boris Karloff or Bela Lugosi in some of those films, all of a sudden they're enhancing it. Yeah, and so it's it, yeah. I mean, adding Carl Kolchak in there and throwing in a few cool Vegas lights in the background greatly enhances the film and makes it, you know, memorable. Does he outshine, you know, the vampire? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and even though he will develop, he is al- he already starts at a pretty high level. I mean, he's cracking wise and, and making the, the funny lines and just Darren McGavin is just brilliant in this role. Yeah, I don't know. It's sort of a chicken and egg thing. I mean, the, uh, I, I don't know if you played it up enough. I know you said the movie was successful, but at the time it was the highest rated TV movie that had ever been broadcast. I don't know. How much do you think of that was because of Kolchak or was because of just the vampire story? I mean, back then, to watch that movie, you had have had to be in front of your television on a specific day at a specific time. You had only maybe seen commercials for it up until then. So you don't know, really, what a great character Kolchak's going to be. Pro- people probably watched it like I did, probably, because it's a monster movie and it looks Gosh. scary. And the, those ABC TV movie commercials, they 
made you want to watch. Oh, they I mean, did. They made you think they were you're going to be well, scared out of your wits. And I think that the fact ABC, you know, and '72 was a little early in their run as far as movie, you know, their their movies and their short movies, but ABC put out good good product, and I think people knew that. I don't know what night of the week it aired. That plays a big part. I mean, which we'll talk about later is one of the key reasons why the series was not successful. Friday nights. Yeah. That that that's the graveyard. Typically I, speaking, uh, if a show was on Friday nights, a genre show, um, you know, it it would sometimes get get lost and get buried. And you know, you put a show on another night, then you know you're going to have a success. Movies I don't think typically aired on Friday nights. I mean, I remember. Like Tuesdays and Wednesdays and and Saturdays and Sundays, being common common movie nights. I'm pretty sure. I don't know why I have in my head that it was Tuesday, but I'm pretty sure it was a Tuesday night. The other thing about it that I think I think this has a well. I'm spoiler alert on my next comments, but this has a as good looking as it is. It's definitely a TV movie. I mean, you can tell. And that could be because of the director, John Llewellyn Moxie. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, he comes from TV. I mean, I'll go ahead and say it. Dan Curtis himself directed The Night Strangler. And I think it has more of a theatrical look. It looks, uh, to me, it's more atmospheric, creepy, darker, more shadows. Uh, So I just think that, that also separates it for me is that this... This is definitely a TV movie. It's. I didn't know the the European cut thing you talked about. That makes sense. I think the Night Strangler could easily have been a theatrical movie. Oh, it could. I, I did read trivia that had uh, they known the success of Night Stalker, they would have released it theatrically. But they didn't realize that they were going to have such a hit on their hands. I will say that the director uh, John Llewellyn Moxley. He did do a couple of big things in the '60s that were oh. not television. Oh. He did Horror Hotel. Um, oh A.K.A. My gosh, City really? of the Dead, yes. Oh, I take back everything I said there. Uh, he also did Circus of Fear. He did lots of television work, but he did do a couple of those things. And Horror Hotel is very atmospheric. Yes, yes. He also did, again, you know, even though these were television films, he did Genesis 2, uh, which is the Gene Roddenberry's attempt to try to start a new series. That was the first of three films that basically had the same character and the same plot with some minor changes. He also directed one of my all-time favorite made-for-television films, Where Have All the People Gone?, with Peter Graves. Now, again, I, I that one, not very atmospheric, but there's some cool things in that one that has always made it stand out to me. And also The House That Wouldn't Die. I remember that one. That was a good one. Yeah. Scary. So, I mean... I mean I mean, I so you give. I'm going to give him credit where credit's due. Yes, this does look like a, a made-for-television film, um, and so as we said, I, I think that that extra 15, 16 minutes of footage in the Night Strangler probably plays a, a pretty big part. I wish I knew what it was, but you know, it probably. I don't know if it's any particular subplots or scenes. Uh, I couldn't find anything that online that that was specific as to what was added. Uh, and I'm not sure that the original 75-minute print is out there. 
as far as like home video goes, I think the 90 minute version has always been the one that's been available. And I am going to edit out everything I said about him because he also directed the pilot, ep pilot movie episode of Charlie's Angels. How well, could I possibly, how could you possibly start to badmouth him? I mean, exactly. I take back everything I said. He is a master. You know, you have to understand, as, as with these made-for-television movies, no matter how talented some of these individuals were, they had low budget, yeah, and they they were cranked out fairly quickly. And again, you're also with a 75-minute running time. That does limit you to an extent. I mean, that that running time works really well for films in the 30s and 40s, but it does limit you with with modern storytelling. I think we should probably see more 75-minute films. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes it may force you to maybe cut some corners to fit in that 75-minute running time so you could fit into that 90-minute television slot. So what do you think about this in relation to the series and its longevity? What you see here is pretty much what you get uh, with almost any episode. You've got a quote-unquote monster of the week, You've got No One Believes Kolchak. He, like we said in the synopsis, spars with his boss and he argues with the police. Always ends with evidence being swept under the rug. And it, in some episodes, I mean, there are consequences for him and some there aren't, but it always ends up with did it happen, didn't it happen, No, uh, and Carl has nothing to show for evidence that it happened. That is consistent. I mean, I think that's a solid setup and can be a solid setup for a series. Do you think they maybe should have evolved from that? Do you think after two movies and then a, a series that that was just too much of the same thing? Think about 1970 television. Uh, true. There was no serialized <laughs> format yeah. back then. You had serialized formats like in, in UK on BBC uh, to an extent, you know, like Doctor Who, for example, was, was serialized to a great degree. You know, episodes running four or six episodes long and themes and this would be picked up several episodes later. You didn't have that on American television. They attempted that with the remake in 2005. Um, I did not see the remake, what I've read about it. I mean, the, it, there's some pretty big differences, and we'll talk about that towards the end of the show. Yeah, you're not going to have that in 1970s television. I mean, it was rare for characters to even come back. You know, I mean, it did happen. Six Million Dollar Man, again, I'm going to keep going to that because it's fresh in my mind, but they brought characters back from season to season um, that were in this story and like the Bionic Woman was brought back after they killed her because she was popular the seven million dollar man you had the character of Woe Fat on Hawaii Five-0 was a recurring villain throughout the entire run of that show but most shows it was the the bad guy of the week and this one was the monster of the week um, I think yeah, it'd be great if we could go back and see if they would have maybe adjusted it a little bit. And I think, and again, we'll talk about this when we get to the series, I think the very formulaic presentation of the show was something Darren McGavin did not care for and ultimately played a big part, I think, in the show's demise, that and the, and the Friday night time slot. So, yeah, I mean, if they could go back and make changes... They might have got more than a season. Genre shows 
back in the 70s, we were good to get a season out of. You know, how many shows went more than one season? Logan's Run, Planet of the Apes, Man from Atlantis. I don't even think that went more than one season. If it did, maybe it went a season and a half. I mean, it just seemed like shows would, would, would make it one season. If they went to a second, it seemed like they always got canceled. Buck Rogers gets canceled in the second season. Battlestar Galactica, despite stellar ratings, gets canceled after one season. And then they bring it back, and it's it's horrible, you know, after, what, two years later. 1970s television is a different different realm than, than we have now, where everything is serialized. It's funny, talking about the Night Stalker makes me want to talk about the series, about the Night Strangler. And I just wonder if that says something about the Night Stalker. I mean, in a way, it's so solid and so strong that, you know, everything comes from that. And yeah, a lot of good stuff, and I mean, the the plot was 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 maybe simple, in a way. Um, the villain of the piece was pretty much paint by numbers, so to speak. But you had a really good cast, and again, that will sometimes make or break. I mean, that can a good cast can kind of make up for whatever you're lacking in in the script. I mean, the script was written by Richard Matheson, so you got to give credit where credit's due. He, he based it on the book by Jeff Rice, but he made it his own. We, you know, well, well, I'll throw some stuff out here, Richard Matheson. If you're listening to the show and don't know who he is, pause right now, <laughs> Google it. Uh, I am Legend, Hell House, Comedy of Terrors, Incredible Shrinking, Shrinking Man. So many short stories, so many, you know, film and television credits. He's a legend. And, you know, is this his best work? You know, I mean, I would say no, but it's not as, is, is, least known or his worst work uh it's it's one of his more memorable ones simply because it's dan curtis and and the night stalker so you know there certainly is a lot going for it uh, when comparing it to the second movie which in many ways as we said was superior you know for whatever reason uh again that extended cut may play a part i still think that, that the night stalker gave us the character of carl kolchak dara mcgavin nailed it. I can't imagine anybody playing that character, which is why I never even bothered to see that. Did you see the 2005 series? You know, I watched the first one. I think I recorded the others. I just never watched them, and I remember nothing about the first one. I think that was, from one I, the few of the things I read, the, the lead actor was, well, he wasn't no. Darren McGavin. There were comparisons, and even I think some people who were just going in the series cold and had not seen the original. They just weren't drawn to him. Darren McGavin had a style. I can't watch The Night Stalker now without thinking A Christmas Story. Um, <laughs> I wonder, you know, this crazy was like, is that really maybe Kolchak? Maybe, you know, were they related or somehow? Because that's, you know, Christmas Story is, is every single December and it plays for 24 hours. That's how people remember Darren McGavin now. He's, he had a very unique style of, of acting, and uh, he, you know, I think he nailed the character of Kolchak. I can't imagine anyone else doing it as well as he did. I wonder how many things he brought in himself that weren't scripted, that were with the character. Uh, I know he, I know, was, I think, he I, was involved in, in, in helping the series. I mean, I think about even just the gag of him throwing his hat, you know, onto the hook. Uh, I have a feeling that he had he had some input. I mean, I know that 
reading about the series, he was heavily involved in fixing the scripts. And he was essentially doing the job of a producer without the credit or the the compensation accordingly. I don't know how involved he was in the movies, but I want to say if he was that involved in the series, he was probably fairly involved in the movies and, and had to have, you know... I mean, well, I mean, his outfit. He came up with the outfit because it was originally supposed to be a Hawaiian shirt and shorts. And he just didn't see himself wearing that. He didn't see the character wearing that. And he came up with... Well, this guy, you know, was once a, a big-time reporter, but he's kind of fallen, you know, or he, he kind of had worked his way up, and now he's made some mistakes, and he's kind of fallen down. This guy hasn't had money to buy a good good suit in a while, which is why the whole outfit is so outdated, right? It's an old Sears sucker-style suit. That was him, and he came up with that. I would suspect that he probably, some of the mannerisms had to have been uh, Darren McGavin's input. This was a dumb question, so I was looking, and uh, this was definitely not his first television series. He'd been a star on many, not just a guest star on which he was, but he was in several series. Darren McGavin? Yes. yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. 1950s version of uh, Mickey's Blaine's My Camera, which I've never seen. I, and I, I don't know. You know, sometimes some of those old shows, episodes are missing. So hopefully that's a series that is out there somewhere. I'd, I'd kind of like to see him play that character. A younger Darren McGavin would be kind of cool. Yeah, he was actually pretty prolific on Broadway and then television and film. So uh, interesting. He, he was known by this point. Yeah, one of his, well, his first television s- series role, it looks like, was something called Crime Photographer. So that's kind of funny that that's what he is. Well, part of what he is. That series sounds familiar, but it has to be something different because there's a crime photographer series or something like that that's got Charles Bronson in it. Probably two different things. But uh, yeah, This was 51 to 52. Oh, yeah, wow. that'd be early. Now, see, that the question would be how many of those episodes exist because a lot of early television ones from that time frame don't exist. They ran for two seasons. Or they exist on on kinescope, so the quality is is a little questionable. Speaking of photography, what is that camera he uses? It looks like a Kodak Instamatic with a cube flash, like the old times. The camera changes, though, doesn't it? I mean, in the series, it looks like he's got something different, I thought. Well, I am talking about the series. Come to think of it, I don't know if he used the same camera in the movies. In the, but in the first movie, he has a bigger a real, camera, okay. I, I think, that has a bigger flash. Well, in the series, at least, it's like, would that even take pictures that would be quality enough to put in a It newspaper? seems small. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, anyway. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure that there's a, a, you know, I know that there's a lot of camera aficionados out there. Uh, I did think that's, it's kind of unique. You know what he's using. I kind of got the impression that it's dated. He's dated. He's wearing dated clothes. Right. So he's not going to have a state of the art camera. Although, it's kind of funny for as many times as that camera kind of gets and that and the tape recorder gets crushed. He always seems to have the same one later. It reminded me of the the shuttlecraft on Star Trek Voyagers. Like you know, no matter how many times <laughs> they lose it, they've got another one waiting there for it. I kind of chuckled on that. 
The other thing that really the last comment I want to make, something I really like about the Night Stalker is that it's a lot of it is shot sort of documentary style, especially like when they're pursuing the vampire and kind of swarming around him. It's got a sort of handheld camera, sort of looks like a documentary the way it was filmed. And I thought that that was interesting, although in a way that makes it a little less suspenseful, maybe. Because it's you're just taking what's there. You're not creating that atmosphere. That I'm yeah, I can kind of see that. Yeah, I, I like it though. It's that is unique. I had mentioned the cast earlier, so I, I want to talk about the cast a little bit. The one thing that that Kolchak seems to have in the in the two movies is a girlfriend or a woman partner of sorts, partner in crime, which is I don't think it picked up in the series. I've revisited four episodes of the series. The two we're going to talk about as well as the first two, and none of those seem to have a, a female attached to Kolchak. Definitely this first movie, I mean, the Gail Foster, played by the late Carol Lindley, that's his girlfriend. It's implied that she might be a showgirl or a prostitute because at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, She's kind of run out of town, you know, and he clearly has feelings for her because there's a mention that he exhausts his savings putting ads and personals across the country trying to locate her, and he can't find her, which would imply that, you know, she's probably doing some some less than reputable work. It kind of surprises me because, I mean, she's run out of town. I felt sorry for him because the way that whole thing goes down is like, She's run out of town, and he doesn't have any way to, to, to find her, and he clearly has feelings for her, and he can't locate her. And I, I wonder, it's like, well, what happened to her? Because, obviously, that, that's the supporting part of maybe she was a prostitute, and being run out of town, she had no other choice but to return to that, and is kind of off the grid. There wasn't a grid in the 70s, but she's not easily found. You know, I, I felt sorry for Kolchak. That that storyline I thought was a little sad. But Carol Lindley does a really good job. Of course, we did just lose her. She died on September 3rd of uh, 2019 at the age of 77 of a heart attack. So she, she had, a, I think, a, a nice life. Um, unfortunately, you know, dying, I would still say 77 is, is a little young to die. But as we go through the rest of the cast, there's a lot, unfortunately, that died at much younger ages. You know, we, uh, of course, you know, Simon Oakland uh, creates the character of Tony Vincenzo. We'll talk a little bit more about him later. There is the FBI agent who, friend of Kolchak's, Bernie Jenks, played by Ralph Meeker. He did some classics. Uh, he was just kind of a supporting character, but he did movies like Kiss Me Deadly, Dirty Dozen, The Anderson Tapes, lots of TV work. He died in 1988 at the age of 67 of a heart attack. Claude Aikens, great character actor. He pops up in a lot of things, a lot of things on television. Plays Sheriff Butcher. Man, he was fun seeing him go up against Kolchak in this one. I think that's one of the... He's always butting heads with the police chiefs. And I think that Claude Aikens is one of the best, in my opinion. Does he, doesn't he come back in the series for another appearance, maybe? I'm not sure. Okay, I think that he does. I could be totally wrong. Uh, of course, he's in the classic... Twilight Zone episode, The Monsters Are Doing Maple Street, that also featured Barry Atwater, who played our vampire of choice in this film. A lot of other television credits, Combat, The Big Valley. Uh, He played General Aldo in Battle for the Planet of the Apes. 
Uh, and a lot of people probably remember him as Sheriff Lobo in BJ and the Bear and his own spin-off series, The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo. He died in 1994 of cancer at the age of 67. I think it's pronounced, was it Elijah uh, Cook Jr.? Plays the character of Mickey Crawford, kind of the uh, wormy, you know, informant of sorts. Legendary actor, starred in classics like The Maltese Falcon and The Big Sleep. Uh, the Vincent Price classic, The House on Haunted Hill, uh, Rosemary's Baby, and yes, my first Star Trek reference. He played uh, Samuel T. Cogley, attorney at law, in the Star Trek episode Court Martial. He died in 1995 at the age of 91, so he lived to uh, to a ripe old age of 91. The character of Fred Hurley was played by Stanley Adams. I am trying to remember what, which character he was, because he comes back in one of the television episodes as a bartender. I don't know if he was a bartender in this one or not. I, I can't remember, but Stanley Adams played Cyrano Jones in the Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. He also co-wrote a Star Trek episode from the third season called Mark of Gideon. Many people will remember him from playing Tybo the Carrot in the Great Vegetable <laughs> Rebellion episode of Lost in Space. The notoriously bad episode. I did not know this, but he committed suicide in 1977 at the age of 62. Hmm. Uh, Larry Linville, a lot of people recognized him. Uh, he played the Dr. McCurgy, I think was how it was pronounced. I'm probably butchering that. Of course, he was known as Frank Burns on MASH for five seasons. He died in 2000 at the age of 60 of pneumonia after having cancer surgery. Death. Uh, everywhere you turn. Barry Atwater played the vampire Janice Scorzenzi. Scorzenzi? Scorzenzi? Yeah. Okay, I'm, <laughs> again, butchering it. He also was in Star Trek, played the Vulcan Surak in the third season episode of The Savage Curtain. He, too, died at a young age, 1978, at the age of 60 of cancer. Horrible. Uh, this, this was kind of like, I just, as I was looking this up, I was like, my gosh... Um, now, the character, here's a few little tidbits about the vampire Scorzeni. I'm, that doesn't sound right. Janos, the vampire. They had originally wanted Robert Quarry to play that part. He Son. was unavailable due to his contract with AIP. Because he was probably making Count Yorga. Count Yorga. Return of Count yes, Yorga. Yes, probably was, honestly. So this, then technically this is a sequel to our last episode. Uh, it could be, yes, yes. Now, the character name um, was utilized again in the Fox series from 1987-ish, 87-88, Werewolf, which starred Chuck Connors. Their werewolf was named Janice, and that was a direct homage to this character in The, the Night Stalker. Have you ever seen Werewolf? Yeah. Wasn't that one of the first... Fox it was. TV series? Yeah, I did. I watched that. I, you know, I never watched it. I watched like one or two episodes at the time, and I've always wanted to watch that series. It's been a little harder to find over the years. I think there's some rights issues, if I remember correctly, which is why it's not streaming. And I think even the DVD release, I'm not even sure this has been released on DVD, to be honest with you. Werewolf? Werewolf. <sighs> I don't think... It's on something. I... I, but I don't think it was officially released. Mm, okay. um, I, I think that's there's the rights issues, and I don't know 
where the where the you know the problem lies but i think that's why i haven't been able to really find a good run of that show but i do remember i watched i watched it because chuck connors was in it and i you know he wasn't in it a lot but when he was in it i think i remember him being really really good Mm -hmm. so the only other thing i had and this is i will give i will kind of pass the the ball back to you is that the music was by Bob Covert. Hmm, who's he? I've never well, heard of him. He worked with Dan Curtis quite a bit on things like Trilogy of Terror, Burnt Offerings, The Norlis Tapes, as well as House and Night of Dark Shadows. And some of the music in The Night Stalker was pulled from uh, The House of Dark Shadows. It was used at the end. I didn't catch it. Did you? I know we've talked about this before, how Dan Curtis uses the same music cues in all kinds of different movies. I don't specifically recall it in this. Okay. Answer your question. No. <laughs> well, I, I didn't catch it. I figured you would, being the Dark Shadows fan. Yes. Maybe you're not as big a fan. Oh, as no, no. no. That's all I've got as far as the trivia on it. I enjoyed it. I, I this, this movie was a lot of fun. It's been a while since I'd seen it. It just has recently been released by Kino Lorber. It's available. You can get it for less than $15 on DVD, less than $20 on Blu-ray. Not a lot of extras. There's a couple interview segments, I think. There's an interview, is it with Bob Cobert? I think the, he talks about the music, I think. Maybe. I'm trying to remember now. Uh, but I know, I know that there's an interview with Dan Curtis. It's kind of split up between the two movies. I've seen Dan Curtis interviewed before. He kind of comes across a little arrogant in the interview. You know, he, he has, he's very opinionated. Never picked that up before on Dan Curtis, but is that was that just my perception, or you're nodding your head that yeah no he yes he comes across that okay way. anyway you know it's a nice uh, for a cheap price it would be nice if the I know that one time the two movies were released by I think MGM on the same DVD honestly I think they Kino Lorber probably should have done that with these two films. Simply because of the length of the film. I guess, you know, Night Strangler is 90 minutes long. It would have been nice if they put the two together on a set. Because if you're going to watch one, your chances are you're going to want to watch the other one. So I don't know why they didn't put them together on a set. I guess collectively, you know, if you get the Blu-ray, they're $40. And I guess maybe that's a little steep by today's standards. It'd be nice if they were in a set for maybe a slightly cheaper price. Especially considering that there's not a ton of extras. Kena Lorber does that sometimes. I mean, some of their releases, I think, are kind of skimpy on extras. Uh, I know that in this day and age, not everyone watches the extras as much as we used to. But I think for those of us who are uh, still into physical media, I like seeing documentaries... And I kind of like to see something, when I buy these these Blu-rays, I'd like to see something more than just a random 10 or 15 minute interview. I'd like to see maybe a little more effort put into the extras. And, and I would have liked to have seen a little more effort uh, specifically on, on these two films. I, I felt that they were kind of skimpy. I had forgotten this. Did you realize that one of the episodes of this series is actually a sequel to The Night Stalker? Yes. Were yeah. we going to talk about that later? or uh, I hadn't seen that one yet, I don't think. Okay, I, I, yeah. it's, it's, it's the fourth episode. It's called yeah. The Vampire, and it is a literal sequel. Picks up, starts in Las Vegas, and it is one I watched. I was going to say later, I, I started a rewatch of the series and got through, I think, episode seven I was writing about them. That actually wasn't the point I wanted to make about that. The point was you mentioned him not having a girlfriend 
it's interesting as you watch the shows, he always seems to have some type of relationship with a woman. And I don't mean like a, a sexual dating relationship, but there's usually a woman character who either is from his past and, you know, there's hints that she knows he's kind of a scoundrel or whatever. In this one, there actually is a woman character, uh, this is in The Vampire, that had potential, I think, to be a recurring character. It was a real estate agent, and in this one he flew to Los Angeles, I believe, to investigate because the vampire from the movie went west and started killing again in Los Angeles. And kind of a, a little bit convoluted story, but he runs across this house, and there's a guru there, and this real estate agent is trying to sell the house. Well, he's balancing the investigating with his assignment so he rings this girl in entices her to become a writer and help write his story so he can go investigate her I name was Faye Kruger yeah. so anyway but a very interesting character and the relationship he had with her was kind of sweet even though it went nowhere romantic in several episodes there are relationships like that with women you know, the, this series recently played on MeTV. I think it was Saturday nights at like 1 in the morning, I think, or midnight or 1. And this is how Carla was introduced to the show because we would put it on TV and I was, you know, I would end up not really paying much attention to it because I was ready for bed and she would end up staying up and getting hooked into it. And then the next day, I think the first time she watched it, the next day she's like, you know, have you ever heard of this this series called, you know, The Night Stalker? And I'm like, well, yes. <laughs> you know, and she was like really interested in it. And so she actually was watching those pretty regularly for a while. And, and I was seeing bits and pieces. And I, I remember seeing bits and pieces of, of that particular episode. And now, of course, we're watching them. Well, we're watching them chronologically now because we we watched the two episodes and then we went back and we're watching the series from the beginning. And so we've made it through the first two episodes. We haven't got to the vampire yet. We made it through the Ripper and the zombie episode. Yeah, the vampire is coming up. But I do remember that there was a sequel, and I do now remember that that there may be female characters in some of those episodes that not quite, I don't think to the extent though, that you had in the first film where clearly, I mean, she, she was his girlfriend. I don't, I don't think they ever went that far in on the series, but I could be wrong. So anything else to say before we take a break and move on? I would just say I recommend it highly. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, I mean, everything about the, the movies and the series are just, it's classic fun stuff that you can't go wrong with. And the Night Stalker kicks things off on a high note. And as we have kind of alluded to, I think it gets even better when we get the second film, The Night Strangler. Oh, I'm eager to hear if you agree. I kind of felt like I had a um, minority opinion on that, but we'll see when we come back. Is it possible for one man to have been responsible for a series of unsolved homicides spanning a period of over a century? Watch The Night Strangler, a chilling story of suspense starring Dara McGavin on the Tuesday movie of the week. Following the events of The Night Stalker, Carl Kolchak and Tony Vincenzo find themselves in Seattle, where Kolchak investigates another bizarre mystery. This time, exotic dancers are dying, their necks crushed, and their bodies partially drained of blood. Will anyone believe him, or will his story be buried again as he's run out of town? 
The Night Stalker was highly successful, as we talked about. Not a surprise then that they ordered a second film, which aired a year later on January 16th, 1973. This time, The Night Strangler. We have Darren McGavin back as Carl Kolchak, Simon Oakland back as Vincenzo, with, again, a supporting cast of some very familiar faces, Almost, I would say, even more so familiar. I definitely uh, would. Definitely a higher level of guest stars. And I'm going to sadly say that we, we have some, some tragedy as well when we start talking about the cast um, with one, one of the actors in particular. So this takes place at some point after the first film, run out of uh, Vegas, and now uh, Kolchak and Vincenzo have found themselves up in Seattle working for... A legit newspaper this time around. Uh, I forget the name of the newspaper, but it is run by uh, Llewellyn Crossbinder, as played by the legendary John Carradine. He only gets a few scenes, but they're fun. Vincenzo seems to be doing quite well, and then there's Kolchak to kind of foul everything up for him. The setting of Seattle plays a big part in this because the Seattle underground uh, ends up playing a, a big part of the plot. I, I'm going to turn it over to you because you, you you have high praise for this film. Um, so I'm going to let you take the lead on that and, and, and share why you think. We've talked, we've alluded to the possibility that the, the extra 15, 16 minutes may play a part, but not knowing what scenes those are, what makes this movie a better film than the first one. Yeah, you. so I, I think the the quality, it is a much more theatrical look and feel. It's, uh, I don't know, there's more texture to it, there's more dark, there's more shadows. Like I said, Dan Curtis himself directed it. It feels uh, richer, maybe? I don't know how, exactly how to describe it. Now, I wonder if they may have had more money because this would be a, a rare case of you know, a success and you're making a sequel with more money where usually it seems like you get less money for the sequel, which doesn't make sense. But this looks to me like more of a theatrical a more, a movie and it goes all the way through it. Even the music is deeper and richer. Do you know what I'm talking? Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Okay. <clears throat> yeah, um, absolutely. I think the, the sets were more expansive. The Seattle Underground was a really cool thing now it is it's it is a real thing they did not shoot in the real seattle underground because it's it's much smaller and a much more confined space so what you what we see as the seattle underground is actually um a universal set uh kind of a standing set that said i think it's awesome i mean it really it's, it's this whole idea of this underground lost city so to speak it's based in reality, clearly enhanced for the film, but adds for some pretty cool visuals. And I think the idea that that there's this kind of forgotten things are, are under the surface forgotten, I, I thought was one of the cool elements of the, of, the, uh, of the movie. That's the good, and I won't say this is bad, but Dan Curtis, like you know, he repeats things. And there are shots in this that are directly out of House of Dark Shadows, which are directly out of the Dark Shadows reboot in the 90s. I mean, he finds something he likes and he uses it. I'm specifically thinking of a low-angle shot as somebody's approaching the camera. It's very familiar. 
The music again by Bob Colbert in places is familiar. I think there's a couple things story-wise that I like better. We know Kolchak now. We've been introduced to him. Not that it took a long time to get to know him or get used to him, but it's, you know, it's more of the same. We we met him, we loved him the first time, and it's just right off the bat. We get more of him. I like that. I also think the monster is sort of original. I don't, it may be a composite of different kinds of elements. I think mostly of like Phantom of the Opera, just simply because he's like underground, but not really. You know, I also got a little bit of Dorian Gray, a little bit yeah. different, but elements a little bit of that. Yeah, so I liked that. I thought it was it was more original from that perspective than uh, the Night Stalker, which was like we said a pretty standard vampire story. And yeah, the guest stars that you mentioned, you're probably going to mention the others, but uh, Margaret Hamilton, you know, the Wicked Witch, Al Lewis. Not genre related, but I even got a kick out of seeing Wally Cox. Yeah, I mean they they and it enhances the. I mean, as we said, oftentimes the the cast can enhance the film, and clearly they're they're brought in for you know a handful of scenes, and and they're brought in for both name and and visual recognition. Pays off though. I think one of the weaker things about the movie though. And it's also one of its strengths because there are certain scenes where they're chasing the villain of the piece, which is Dr. Richard Malcolm or Dr. Malcolm Richards, seem to be very, very similar to the chase scenes that we got of the vampire in the first film. Very similar to the the fact that he's kind of impervious and, and super strong. And honestly, you know, they continue that in the series because the Ripper was very very similar to that as well it works and it's entertaining but by the time he gets to the Ripper that was the one thing in that episode that I was like wow we kind of saw this in the first two films it'd be nice if we got something a little bit different and we do eventually as the series goes on we definitely go some different down a different path clearly the reason they did that was because it worked if it's not broke don't fix it that's the one thing that I think is a bit of a pro, a bit of a con for me with the Night Strangler is that I loved it in the first film and I love it here, but it some of the scenes lacked originality hmm. for me. Worked for me. I still enjoyed it, but I have to acknowledge that, you know, as you said, Dan Curtis, in, I don't, this is going to sound bad, but he's in some aspects, he's kind of that one trick pony, right? It's like, he does what he does, he does it well, and he keeps going back to that well and keeps doing it. Yep, we, I, won't, we, I won't argue. Yeah, we enjoy it, but it has to be acknowledged that doesn't necessarily take chances because he knows what works and he just keeps doing the same thing. And we enjoy it when he does it. I'm not going to knock him for that, but I acknowledge that, that there, was some, there was some repetition in this film. Didn't deter from my enjoyment, though. Did you notice that, and I... I didn't catch this, actually, because I guess I'm just so used to seeing Kolchak wearing this seersucker suit. He wore a blue suit in this one. He, he did not wear the seersucker suit. Hmm, I did not. I, I really kind of want to go back now and see. It's like, well, is, did it just kind of look similar? I thought he looked the same, but now I, I read this little trivia note, and I'm like, well, are they wrong? Or did it just, was it similar but not the same exact suit as he, I don't know. I thought that kind of interesting because that would be about the only time he would wear something different, I think. Because I think pretty much he, he wears the same thing throughout the series. 
talking about Dr. Richard Malcolm or Malcolm Richards, Richard Anderson, I would have loved to have seen a little bit more of him. I love him as an actor. Again, going down the $6 million man path, he played Oscar Goldman, his most memorable role, I think, of anything that he did. But he did lots of TV work. I remember seeing him on The Big Valley. You know, he continued to, to act on into later years. Um, he was always in the classic Forbidden Planet, you know, at the younger part of his career. We were talking about this. I, I really wish I would have had a chance to see Richard Anderson. The Six Million Man is a part of my childhood, and, and I played Steve Austin in the backyard, and I had still have the figures downstairs. You know, I had a chance to meet Lee Majors and Lindsay Wagner. I fanboyed a little bit when I met them, I, and I'll own that. They were both very gracious, probably thought, you know, gosh, they've heard it a million times. But I would have liked to have met Richard Anderson. I, I had the opportunity, and I, I couldn't get down to Trek Expo that particular year. It was in the fall. I was at a band competition with the kids, and that was my one and only chance to see him, and I missed that, and I regret that. Uh, and sadly, we, we lost him. As I said, he died in 2017 at the age of 91. He did live long enough to be there for the Six Miller Man being released on DVD by Time Life, and he did quite a few conventions with Lee Majors and Lindsay Wagner. For a lot of years, Lee Majors wouldn't do conventions, and he finally agreed to do them, and then the three of them were doing conventions together. Some of his last appearances, you could clearly see he was suffering he didn't have much memory and was just kind of up on the stage smiling. And, and Lee Majors and, and Lindsey Wagner were, were kind of helping him along. Sad to see, but it was also nice to see the three of them together after all those years. So I, Richard Anderson, I really wanted to see more of him. What we saw was was fun, especially the, the climax of the film. But I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of him in the film. As far as the rest of the cast, we have the... Femme fatale, if you will, Louise Harper, played by Joanne. Is it plug or flug? Uh, flug, I think. Flug, all right. Uh, if I remember from Match Game or Hollywood Squares or something. Joanne Flug, yeah, she was on lots of TV shows and game shows in the 70s and 80s. Um, Match Game was one that she was on quite frequently. So if you grew up in that time like we did, you know who she is. Captain Schubert, the uh, police captain of choice for this film, played by Scott Brady. Did lots of Western television roles. Dan Curtis says in the interview on the DVD that he really liked Scott Brady. Scott was always coming to the set and willing to do whatever needed and was always kind of throwing him, I think, some extra scenes because he was always kind of just there, and he liked him. Wally Cox playing the character of Titus Berry, the researcher in the basement that uh, I thought it was funny when... He says he's been working there for so many years, and John Carradine's character of Crossbinder is like kind of like, really? You know, I was like, didn't even know he was there. <laughs> Wally Cox, of course, is, is a fun actor. Mr. Peepers, I think, was was the character he played. I've never seen Mr. Peepers, but I always hear about it. Well-known actor in the, in the 60s and, and 70s, and, and I think going back to the 50s, I believe. This is actually his, I think, his last completed work hmm. i think there was a television episode that may have aired after it but i think this was his last film work he died in 1973 at the age of 48 of a heart attack oh i didn't know that so he he died at, a, at an incredibly young age margaret hamilton had the the fun oh, it came as a cameo role but she played professor hester crabwell that was so much fun seeing her in that scene everyone knows who she is the wicked witch from the wizard of oz 
she's done other things, but she's the Wicked Witch. But she's a lot, a lot of fun in that fun little role. Uh, we also have Al Lewis playing the Tramp, who you think actually may be the bad guy of the piece at one point. It's kind of a, you know, misleads you for a second when he comes out of the shadows. Of course, everyone knows him as Grandpa from the Munsters. And, and a lot of people I often see talk about him uh, as the host of Super Scary Saturday. He's kind of the almost a forgotten horror host of sort because Super Scary Saturday was on wasn't like in the evening as it was on Superstation TBS Saturdays at eleven I think, but I remember watching you know the, and he played a pretty wide assortment of bad films but it was always kind of fun to see uh, see him on there. One of the dancers, Charisma Beauty, <laughs> Nina Wayne. Did you recognize her? No. Okay. I was looking at her, and she's like, I said, you know, she looks familiar, but not 100%. She is the younger sister of Carol Wayne. If you ever watched The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, he always had the blonde when he would do the the Tea Time movie, and he had the assistant. That was Carol Wayne. Hmm. She was notorious for for being the the typical bubble-headed, you know, ditzy blonde Nina Wayne was her younger sister. They looked very, very similar. Nina Wayne actually, I think, did more acting than Carol Wayne did for the most part. But this was her last role, so um, not a very long or illustrious career. But she did, I think she did a little more than Carol Wayne. However, Carol Wayne is now remembered more so for The Tonight Show. So that's what I had on the cast. I didn't have much in the way of extra trivia on this one. I did have some, some things about where things were headed potentially for a third film. Yeah, I was hoping you'd bring that up. Go ahead and tell, and then I will tell my uh, okay. excitement about that. This movie was highly successful. I think it was is maybe not quite as successful as The Night Stalker, but successful enough that a television series was ordered, much as with you know with the other shows we talked about earlier. Successful movies lead to an order of a television series. But... Before they went that route, they were going to do a third movie, and it was going to be called The Night Killers. This is where, depending on what I read, I've heard kind of two things as to where the next movie may have gone. At the end of this movie, after Kolchak you know, has his confrontation with, with Dr. Malcolm, it looks like maybe he's going to get his story printed. He gets a handful of copies printed, and then it's pulled at the last minute. And not only does he lose his job, but Vincenzo loses his job, too. I did think that Vincenzo, he went to bat for Kolchak this go-around, and which I like the way he's portrayed in this one. And it does kind of play into the series where Vin- Vincenzo and Kolchak have kind of a love-hate relationship. But Vincenzo does say that he admires Kolchak, that he is a good writer, he is a good reporter, and loses his job because he kind of goes to bat for Kolchak. At the end of the movie, Vincenzo and Kolchak and Louise Harper in the back seat, they're apparently headed to New York. And it looks like that's where the third movie was going to take place. But then I also read that there was a plan for the third movie to take place in Hawaii, where Vincenzo was working for a paper now in Hawaii, and Kolchak would have been hired. And it would have been a plot that would have had to deal with UFOs and androids, and I'm like, when I read that, I'm like, I'm not sure what I think about that. Part of me is like, that would have... I mean, they did cover some sci-fi stuff in the series. 
Setting it in Hawaii, though, would have been interesting. I don't know how they would have had the budget for that, honestly. I, I, I wish that kind of would have seen that. I wish they would have done that maybe before doing the series. I kind of would have liked to see what they could have done. And would we have seen Kolchak wearing those Bimrita shorts and Hawaiian shirt? Maybe. I don't know. What are your thoughts on well, I just, the potential? I realize there has been fan fiction and novels and comic books, and I have not read all of those, but it just excites me to think there's a whole missing season that could have taken place in New York or, or Hawaii or something. So those stories are like out there. We just haven't heard them. Because I don't believe once a series starts, there's really any explanation of why they're in Chicago. And so I thought they were in New York until I the series was like, oh no, they are in Chicago. Yeah. And the character of Louise Harper just disappears. Yeah. I was kind of like, what happened to her? You know. So there's there are stories to be told and that's exciting. I haven't read any of the comics that Moonstone put out. Have you ever read any of those? I have. It's been a while. I, you know, they weren't memorable. There actually was one where uh, Barnabas Collins was in a Kolchak story. Oh, and there were two covers. One of them had Barnabas Collins on it. And the other one didn't, or he was more prominent in one of them. I have, to, to this day, never seen that cover that features Barnabas more prominently. And it's... Like sort of one of my holy grails, I guess. I don't know if they ever really printed it. I've never. I I look for that every once in a while and can't find it. Anyway, um, I gotta say, last week just I, I saw pictures of the Night Stalker Gold Key comic. Yes, I yes. saw that. I was like, what? Yeah, that's. I, fun. I, got, I I was ready to go to my comic place and look that up, and then they were they were fake. And yeah. was like, once I saw the rest of the pictures, but they had me going for a second, and I was like, yeah, take my money, I'm ready to go. I don't have much more to say. I know I raved about how I liked it more than the first one, and now I, I feel like I don't have that much to say about it, but I kind of talked about it in the last segment, too. Well, I, I, I think it just it has a look. It, it has The running time is a little longer. It feels more like a, a traditional film, I guess. The story seems a little more expansive with the extra sets. I think those are the things that, yeah, that yeah. I think we agree on, that yeah. it has just a look like it, it went to the next level a little bit. And so then, after this movie and, and the, the third film was kind of pushed aside, we get Kolchak the Night Stalker, the television series. And unless we have anything else about the Night Strangler, we'll take a break, I uh, guess. And I, I'll just add, I saw that when they were going to make three movies, they were thinking of calling it Trilogy of Terror, which I think is interesting just because Dan Curtis produced a real trilogy yes this is true yeah so whatever that's worth i don't know if that's true or not i don't know how they would have that would have been retroactively a trilogy of terror because i don't think they started out to make three maybe some retroactive marketing maybe yeah but i don't think that that was ever intended to be that let's take another break then and uh, come back and talk about a couple episodes of the series he covers the cases others dare not touch. A headless motorcycle rider swinging the sword. I, I believe you. And he will get his story at any cost. Why should we always accentuate the gruesome? Was Morton by any chance beheaded? Yes, and you could use a good trim yourself. He's not your average reporter. Another vanishing corpse. I tell you, we're in luck. And these are not your run-of-the-mill cases. This is one story I may not get to file in person because it's after me. He is the Night Stalker. Coming up next. Kolchak, the Night Stalker television series aired September 13th, 1974 until March 28th, 1975. 
20 episodes. I believe it was going to run 22. We'll talk about that. Because the series ends in 1975, and one of the two episodes we're going to talk about aired in 1975, I thought it would be fun to take a look at what happened in 1975. Average monthly rent was $200. My gosh, I I would sell my house now to go someplace to pay $200 a month rent. Gas was 72 cents. Now, I remember when I started paying for gas myself, it wasn't much more than that in the in the 80s. It was like 80-some. And actually, I remember paying 59 cents uh, at one point. Gas was cheap for a very long time, and then at some point it went up and has never gone down. South Vietnam surrendered to North Vietnam, ending the state of war that existed between the two since 1955. And, you know, the more things change, the more things they stay the same, because here we are... Looking at war once again. Hate that. Operation Baby Lift would bring Vietnamese orphans to the United States. I remember a lot of Vietnamese. We had a young Vietnamese girl who came to our school in the 1970s. Sony introduced Betamax, while JVC introduced VHS. I think we know what happened with that. Although it took about a decade, honestly. Patty Hearst was arrested for armed robbery. She was kidnapped in 1974 and then, of course, ended up Stockholm Syndrome a little bit, ended up kind of getting brainwashed and joined her kidnappers. Jimmy Hoffa disappeared in 1975. For some reason, I always thought it was earlier than that. Hmm. The British Prime Minister was Harold Wilson. Why does that sound familiar? I don't know. I, I, I was going to say, do we remember Harold Wilson? I think I don't. we must have... How long was he prime minister? I, don't I think know. he was mentioned in a previous... It might have been. Yeah. might have been. U.S. president was Gerald Ford. Muhammad Ali beats Smokin' Joe Frazier, Frazier in the Thrilla in Manila. Top films of the day. Jaws, The Towering Inferno, Young Frankenstein, The Godfather Part Deux, and One <laughs> Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going. I'm getting goofy here. It's late. Top television shows of the day. The Six Million Dollar Man was one of the top shows. Kojak, Good Times, All in the Family, and The Carol Burnett Show. We talked a little bit about this musically. An interesting year. Um, I, I struggled. And we have a, 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 a bit of a disagreement here. I, <laughs> the number one song of the year was "Love Will Keep Us Together" by Captain and Neil. And he has the gall to say that the songs aren't worth mentioning that he's going to go with albums instead. Well, come on. I am, mentioning, I am mentioning yes, songs. I, I, had to, I had to go beyond the top 10, though. The oh, top okay. 10, I found that there were songs in the top 50 that are more memorable than some of the songs in the top 10. For example, yes. I had to mention Rhinestone Cowboy, because that was a favorite song of mine when I was a kid. Fame by David Bowie. We had One of These Nights by the Eagles. Blackwater by Doobie Brothers. Kung Fu Fighting, we had Jive Talking by the Bee Gees, and Sister Golden Hair by America. America's a guilty pleasure of mine. Do we? I, uh, we, we don't have guilty pleasures. We don't have guilty pleasures musically, yes. no, we don't. Top albums of the day. There were some definite classics that came out this year. Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin, Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd, A Night at the Opera by Queen, Welcome to My Nightmare by Alice Cooper, which features Vincent Price, Young Americans by David Bowie, Fleetwood Mac by Fleetwood Mac, and to a slightly lesser degree, we had Fly By Night by Rush and Dress to Kill by Kiss, not their best albums. One of the top albums of the year, considered one of the best albums ever recorded, Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen. Bruce has never been a personal favorite of mine. I enjoy his music. 
I don't own any of his music. I don't know if you're a Bruce Springsteen fan. You know, some people are rabid about him, not me. But I acknowledge he's he is legendary. Top horror movies of 1975. Kind of a weaker year for horror movies. We had, and we had Trilogy of Terror, which was bigger. We had the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is classic now. Legend of the Werewolf and the Ghoul. Not A-list films, but enjoyable. The Devil's Reign. <laughs> it's a bad film, but I love it. Night of the Seagulls, which was the last of the Blind Dead series. Paul Nashi and Werewolf and the Yeti. And a film I... I have not seen, I've never heard of this film, I don't know how I've never heard of it, I must find it, The Werewolf of Woodstock. Have you ever heard of this film or seen it? Uh, I think I've heard of it, but I know nothing about it. I believe the, the lead actor is a guest star from Star Trek episode, I think, when I was looking at the guest list and I'm drawing a blank down his name. It takes place the day after Woodstock and apparently... Guy somehow gets electrified and becomes a werewolf, I guess, with really big fangs. I've got to seek that out. Anywho, that's what was happening in 1975. And, of course, 75 was when the Night Stalker was kind of coming to a close. But let's go first to the fall of 1974 when the Night Stalker was kicking off its television series. We've got, of course, the two uh, familiar faces, Darren McGavin, back as Carl Kolchak and Simon Oakland as Vincenzo. It's now set in Chicago. They are now working at the Independent News Service in a rather rundown building, not necessarily top level anymore. They're they're kind of at the bottom rung of the ladder. The train is going by outside and shaking the building, but they're still working together. Because it's a television series, we get a chance to see some of the other people in the office. There's not a huge office staff, but we have some supporting characters, the character of Ron Updike. Uptight. Uptight, as he would be called, played by Jack Greenwich. Kind of a character actor, did, did roles in some classic films, Rebel Without a Cause, King Creole, Spartacus. Kind of plays a wormy character. He dresses real sharp. He wants to be this big reporter, but never has the stomach for anything. Ruth McDevitt, uh, you don't know her name, but you know her face. She's popped up in a gazillion things on television, including the classic Hitchcock film, The Birds. She had a part in that. She plays Emily Coles, kind of the Dear Abby of the paper. In the episodes I've seen, she has a really good relationship with Kolchak. She truly does feel sorry for him at times, and you can tell that he genuinely cares for her. I like that relationship that I've seen. I didn't write it down that there was the other character. She was in one of the episodes. I don't know if she is in all the episodes. She was like the niece of the niece of yeah. the yeah. She recurs. She recurs. Yeah. Okay, I, I couldn't remember if she did or not. I don't have her name written down. She did not look familiar to me, so I'm going to say she might not have done too much. Maybe we'll look that up during the course yeah, of this episode. Yeah, I don't. It's an odd name. It doesn't fit her. It's like Dominique or something. Yes, and yes. It, she did, looks nothing like what no, her name no, no, no. is. Which is a horrible thing to say. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. It is. Horrible, horrible. I'm going to edit that out. All right. So what we did is we each gave each other a number to pick the two episodes that we were going to randomly to watch. And we watched both of them. The first of which was episode number seven, The Devil's Platform, aired on November 15th, 1974. Written by Tim Mashler, teleplay by Don Mullally, directed by Alan Barron. I didn't know any of those names, and I didn't... I, did you come up with something? You're giving me this look. Well, 
Uh, Did I miss something on one of these? No, but I just guess one point I want to make about the whole series is someone that was on the writing staff and has sole writing credit uh, for over the course of the series is David Chase. David Chase created The Sopranos and became something, you know, and here's where he started out with Kolchak. I haven't made enough of my way through the series to know if like those episodes stand out the ones he was more directly involved in or not but it just impresses me and the reason i made that face is i believe alan Barron is familiar as well he may have worked with david chase on some sopranos i'm not sure but anyway that's quite a place to go from Kolchak the Night Stalker. What I did did read in, uh, is the fact that I think we mentioned this earlier is that Darren McGavin was involved in the overall production of the show. He was essentially serving the role of a producer without actually being recognized as a producer or without basically the, the compensation or all the bells and whistles that went with that. He was also heavily involved in rewriting a lot of the scripts because according to McGavin, the quality of scripts were poor compared to the movies, and he played a part in, I guess, more so than maybe the way his character was portrayed. He, he knew the character and was involved in, in trying to rewrite the script so that his character came off more in line with who the character was. So that would play a problem throughout the, the run of this show. Ultimately, and we'll talk about this kind of at the end, but it played a part in the show's ultimate demise. So I thought the way we do this is like, since we both had sort of an episode, we, we both watched them both, but if you want to like take the lead on yours and go, to go through the plot and talk about it, I, I might add a comment here or there, okay. but, and then we can kind of flip it. So I think I had lucky number seven, right? You I had, did. I, I had the devil's platform. Yep. So this one deals with essentially devil worship, which was a popular theme in the 1970s. And we get a very familiar face, young, youngish here, not super young, but Tom Skerritt plays uh, Robert Palmer, who is on his way to being a senator, and he's on his way to the White House because, well, he's sold his soul to the devil along the way to get, uh, he was, as it's kind of towards the end of the episode, he, he essentially acknowledges that he was a nobody. He was a zero. He had delusion, or not delusions, but visions of uh, grandeur. He wanted to do more with his life, and, well, you know, selling his soul to the devil was going to give him those things. And, of course, there are obstacles along the way, and you have to eliminate those obstacles. And uh, we see a variety of obstacles gradually eliminated in the show, uh, starting off with kind of his right-hand man in the, in the uh, campaign, who realizes that really Robert Palmer is not a great guy. I find that scene funny, right? They're getting ready to go in an elevator, and I this you see this in TV shows and movies all the time, where the guy is like telling Robert Palmer, I'm going to go to the police and to the newspaper, and I'm going to expose you for all these horrible things. What happens to those characters 110% of the time? They're dead like two minutes later. Why do people do that? I, you know, I know it's a plot device, but it always makes me laugh. I'm like, you're an idiot and you're, you're dead. You've just signed your... I mean, why would you do that? If I was going to expose somebody, I'm going to lie through my teeth and walk out the door because I don't want to get killed. If, this, if I know this person is, is capable of killing or doing bad things, why would I say, I'm going to tell the world what you do? That made me laugh. And, and I know it's 
minor little quibble, but we see it in a gazillion things. Anyway, yeah, he ends up ends up uh, not making it to the bottom. Well, he makes it to the bottom floor, but doesn't survive. And Robert Palmer's got the ability to change into devil dog hound from hell, essentially. And that allows him to do things and get into places that he wouldn't be able to otherwise. Ellen Weston plays his wife, Lorraine Palmer, who knows what he's done. She really wants him to basically back out of the deal. And as he says, you can't back out of the deal. And he doesn't want to back out of the deal. He He's enjoying where he's headed. Stanley Adams is a bartender in this one. We talked about Stanley Adams earlier. He pops up in this one as a uh, as a bartender. And I don't know if he pops up in the series again, but I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, this was a fun one. Tom Skerritt, of course, well-known for Alien. Uh, he was in Devil's Reign that we mentioned. Is, is one of my personal favorites because it's just so crazy. It's got William Shatner, Ernest Borgnine as the devil. I love it. You know, he's well-known for the television series Picket Fences. Uh, he was in, of course, Top Gun. Still with us. He is definitely getting older. I've heard that he has a cameo in Top Gun Maverick coming out this summer. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. <laughs> Just stating the fact. Just stating the fact. I thought it was a fun episode. It played off, I think, a little bit different because, you know, sometimes he's going up against the monster of the week. This is, you're dealing with the devil and Satan worship and selling your soul to the devil. And I love how when we have the climactic moment and Kolchak has been revealed, seemingly just becomes more and more bumbling as the movies and series goes on always ends up in the wrong place at the wrong time and always seems to somehow by the skin of his teeth make it out i loved when palmer is essentially giving him an opportunity is like i'm gonna give you a deal he says you're a good reporter you have things that are holding you back you're not a great reporter but you're a good reporter you want that pulitzer prize you want to work for you know a a big newspaper again I can give you this and this and this. And there's that moment where Kolchak kind of has this look on his face like, yeah, that does kind of sound good. I love that. It's like there's a, a, you know, he's getting tempted. And Kolchak is, for a split second, he's kind of thinking to himself, yeah, that would kind of be nice. And then it's that whole, you know, selling your soul to the devil. And then that's where it goes into this whole thing where it's like, well, you know, do I have to do that? And do I have to make up my mind right now? And then he said, well, no, it's it's a deal that's going to expire in a matter of minutes. You know, matter of seconds, really. I love that whole interchange between the two. And, and the, the the last temptation of Carl Kolchak, I thought was was kind of a cool element to the, uh, to the episode. Ultimately, spoiler alert, evil is defeated and, and Kolchak, you know, doesn't have the evidence to, to get the, the story printed. And of course mentions that Lorraine Palmer has disappeared at the end of the episode, which I kind of made me wonder is like, did she go into hiding because she knows too much or did something happen to her because she knew too much? I kind of liked how they left that a little bit open and made you wonder what happened to her. I liked the way that 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 kind of ended. I, I really enjoyed this episode. I thought it was a lot of fun, a little different than what I remember most of the, the Night Stalker episodes being the Monster of the Week. It was a little uh, different. Yeah. <laughs> it was a little different, a little unusual compared to some of the more standard fare of the series. What are your thoughts? That was my comment. So this was episode seven. So basically up until then, we had Jack the Ripper, 
We had a zombie. We had a UFO. We had the vampire, the sequel. We had the werewolf. You know, like you said, the standard monster of the week. This was one of the one first ones where it kind of took a different route and went with something that wasn't familiar, sort of like the Night Strangler did uh, as far as the two movies go. So I liked that. We talked earlier about continuity or evolution of characters. There's a little bit of that in here because Miss Emily, who you mentioned, she started out in the series and then she kind of disappeared. And, you know, you don't think much about it. But in this episode, she comes back from a trip to Italy. So that's why she hasn't been there. She's been on this trip to Italy. Of course, that's a plot device because she brings books back that Kolchak can use in his investigation. Kolchak and some of his lines that continue to get funnier and funnier... And, you know, Vincenzo acting off of him, he, uh, in some scuffle or something, he tears his jacket. And I think Vincenzo says, are you trying to tell me you're concerned how you look? I thought that was really yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah. He arrives at that, the house where Palmer is at the end. And the episodes are interspersed with varying degrees of narration as Kolchak's driving somewhere or doing something. Yes. So he's walking up to the house and he says... It looked like Gone with the Wind, but this one had gone to the dogs. <laughs> yeah. Which have double meaning because of the devil dog it's very funny i i liked this i like i do my movies so far i have rated all of these episodes and i gave it an eight out of ten i really enjoyed this one uh, more than a couple of others that had come before this so i i enjoyed it yeah i did too i think this was a this was a good pick and i'll just come right out of the the gate and say of the two episodes we watched this was by far my favorite of the two yeah, I I guess is that my segue to begin talking about episode 13, Primal Scream? Yes, aired on January 17th, 1975. Yeah. So I think I liked it more than you, however, I did not like it as much as your episode. Primal Scream, we're back sort of to the monster of the week, and this monster, I guess you would say, is sort of an ape man or a... Uh, Oh, like a thought-out Neanderthal type of thing. I mean, he developed from some prehistoric cells that got warm and developed in a broken freezer. The police blame it on animals that escaped from a truck from the yes. zoo. But, yes. you know, and and basically, really, I think mostly he's referred to as an ape man. So if you're calling it Monster of the Week, it's an ape man. The cast, or well, first this was written by uh, Bill Ballinger and David Chase. So David Chase that we talked about earlier was one of the co-writers of this one. Therefore, disproving my theory that perhaps he was involved in some particularly strong episodes. It was directed by Robert Shearer. Familiar faces, the police captain in this that uh, Kolchak spars with is John Marley. Very familiar actor uh, who I'm sorry Richard I'm not you I'm, I'm I don't have prepared to rattle off everything he's been in if, Char- if you would like to throw in I had character actor I mean yes. he, he, nothing of note but you'll recognize him when you see him yes. so. unlike Jamie Farr <laughs> everyone knows Jamie Farr and he's got a, a very funny role in this uh, he does. he's a professor I guess and he's got a little chip on his shoulder because his friends who are PhDs have been called in to consult and he never has so he he kind of gets into the fact that Kolchak has come to him for what he might know about this ape man that's running around. Some more continuity with the characters. Updike has a pretty decent part in this one. There's a a parking spot. He's something we didn't say earlier and maybe it's as the show goes on. Updike gets a little tired of 
Kolchak's screwing with him. So yeah. he, he tries to screw back, but of course, it always Kolchak is yeah. the master. So there's a, a joke with the parking spot, which is really funny. And I don't know if I thought it was a throwaway gag. I didn't expect it to come back later, but Kolchak has again outsmarted him and uh, Updike gets his car towed instead of Kolchak. That was very funny. Oh, I don't even know if he's credited because I did not see it uh, on IMDb. However, I made a note that Lorenzo Lamas had a cameo. Just a very brief part. Um, he's one of the guys that got killed. So he's a, watching a mummy movie on TV and the ape crashes through the window and grabs him. Be a young That's Lorenzo right. Lamas. I mean, sometimes no. think. Well, he looks like how I remember him from what was he on falcon, falcon crest. crest or something yeah, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I guess falcon crest started in the early 80s uh, maybe yeah. eight years yeah ago. so i i don't see that he's credited but there's mm, okay definitely recognize my lorenzo lamas this is an episode where kolchak gets his camera broken we talked about that earlier that happens every once in a while and next episode he seems to have it restocked kolchak goes to some his measures i guess have gotten a little more extreme. He actually sneaks into the police captain's office and steals some photographs. And he gets away with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he bumps into him on his way out, and I don't know what he did with him because he even gets frisked and they don't find him. He folds him up and puts him in his jacket, and so when they're they're doing it, they don't, don't feel yeah. that he actually has it. Yeah. He, he also he uh, sits in a wheelchair and wraps in a blanket. You know, goes to uh, whatever means he needs to to. To get his story that's great something that is a pattern in a lot of the episodes is the last segment will have like a, a scene an extended scene where there's almost no dialogue and kolchak is stalking the monster himself mm -hmm. and then he has a confrontation of some kind uh, sometimes he'll dispatch the monster himself this episode was a little different he tried to talk to it and say that i'm yeah, your friend that's and, true and not automatically try to get rid of him. And then, of course, a little bit of a trope, but of course the police arrive and shoot him before the ape-man, not Kolchak. So that was interesting. So it had some different new things that they were playing with a little bit. I thought it got a guy in a gorilla suit, basically. I thought he looked like the um, from Nightmare on, on 20,000 Feet. The gremlin on the plane. Oh, yeah? I kind of thought he looked like that a little huh. bit. I, could, I don't know why yeah, I thought that. The th and this is something we haven't talked about. The monster of the week is a bit of a hit or a miss. The werewolf episode is terrible. And that's a little misguided in itself because if you're going to have... Well, I don't know if it's a good idea to have a werewolf story on a cruise ship or not. Um, it seems like you're kind of... I mean, you, yeah. you have the claustrophobia kind of thing, but yet you're also kind of limited horrible horrible makeup i do remember with the werewolf that, yeah. this ape man's not bad i mean it's better than the werewolf but still it's not great so you've got hit or miss but there was a missed opportunity it's in that closing segment when he's on the pursuit and he's in the dark tunnels because they learn that a creature like this would have lived and existed in tunnels well where are their tunnels in chicago and i don't even remember where it is but he finds him and he's stalking him and there's the perfect opportunity for that sort of jump scare, the way the camera is. It's like facing Coltrack, then you see his point of view, and you expect when the camera comes back, the creature's standing behind him, and it's sort of a jump scare. Well, they they kind of squander that. That doesn't happen, and then eventually the ape man true. just starts heading for yeah. him. So, you know, that's 
I think a couple of little tweaks and this would have been an exceptional episode. To me, it's getting better with the comedy, with the limited evolution of the characters, the development that there is. By now, he's like a comfortable suit you put on, you know, it, you're familiar with all the conventions of the show and they're, they become more enjoyable, but it just it kind of misses on some of the extras. Uh, maybe that are more of the core pieces of the show, plot-wise. I don't know. That's my opinion of that. Um, this, uh, what did we say? This was episode 13, and there are 20 episodes in the... Yes. So we're only just a little over halfway through, and I haven't gone on uh, to watch anything past this recently. I don't know if this is a trend that we're going to see continue as sort of a maybe even a plateauing of these things that we find comfortable and enjoy. Maybe maybe those be, start becoming older. Maybe they get a little more careless with the, the main plot or the main monster. I looked at the list of episodes. There are some episodes after this that I remember more fondly. But it's been, you know, I, we're, like I said, we're only on episode two of working our, you know, we just watched episode two, working our way through the whole series to where I'm actually going to sit down and watch it from beginning to end. So I I, I can't speak 100% on that. Maybe we can pick up on that if you finish the series. I know that, you know, we'll plan on finishing it. I'll be finishing You know, yeah. probably sooner than later because, uh, you know, we're going to continue to watch that here every night. Maybe that's something we can pick up in the next episode is just maybe by then we'll have finished it and maybe we can offer up our thoughts on the the rest of the episodes that we saw just a follow-up yeah i'm scanning the the summaries real quickly and there there's a witch in the next episode the trevi collection other than that they're kind of unique kind of combinations of of types of of monsters or yeah i i don't know i mean i was bad mouthing the familiarity of the vampire yet I think I'd rather have that than a woman who maintains her youth and beauty by sacrificing young men and women to ancient Greek gods. Yeah. You're kind of maybe jumping the shark somewhere along the a way A little there. bit, yeah. But nevertheless, I can't imagine that it's not going to maintain the humor and the, the character uh, that it's built up with Kolchak. No, I, that's one thing I do remember is that even though in some of those episodes where you're dealing with some lesser monsters, you still have the humor uh, and you still have Kolchak being Kolchak, and that that doesn't that doesn't diminish as the series goes on. At least I don't recall that it did, that it did that. You were talking about some of the guest stars. So there's a few that you you didn't talk oh, about. Oh, good. Uh, the character of Thomas Kitzmiller, played by Pat Harrington, uh, A.K.A. Schneider from One Day at a Time. Yeah. Kind of fun to see him in a non-comedic role. Barbara Rhodes played the secretary, very familiar character actress, usually plays kind of a underhanded character a lot of times, or a sneaky character. She was in Soap, which I think is one of, I, I don't know how big of a role she had in Soap. Barbara Rhodes, let me see her character name. I don't know, I, I, I don't know what her character name was, but it didn't look like it was a, just a one-shot appearance. Maggie maybe. Chandler, huh, in the fourth season, I don't remember. I thought of you when I saw that. Yeah, well, thank um, you. Now, Catherine Woodville plays Dr. Helen Lynch. There was something about her voice that I couldn't quite place. Well, sure enough, she actually was in Star Trek. She played the character of Natira in the third season episode for The World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. 
In that particular episode, she plays the leader of a people, and she ends up marrying McCoy in that episode. Uh, and then he ends up uh, leaving her behind. And I recall that you know, there, there was a two high-profile web series that continued Star Trek. There was Star Trek New Voyages or Star Trek Phase 2, it went by two different names, and then there was Star Trek Continues. Star Trek Continues, I absolutely love that series, and, and I think it's a wonderful continuation. Different cast, you know, but it's a basically what would have happened if Star Trek went to Season 5. Star Trek Phase 2, or Star Trek New Voyages, came first, and it had, the probably the biggest problem is that it had the actor James Colley who played Kirk, he was doing almost a parody of Kirk at times, not intentionally, but he also, in real life, is an Elvis impersonator and just didn't have the hair. He had kind of Elvis hair. They uh, ended up recasting the role towards the end, and when all of the the whole uh, Axanar stuff came up, for Star Trek fans to know what I'm talking about, it ended the ability for fan series to be made, their next episode was going to be a sequel to For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. It was going to go back to the planet and it was going to pick up. And I was really, really interested in that episode. One of the guest stars in that was going to be Richard Hatch, who played Apollo in Battlestar Galactica. That was the thing is that they were bringing in some some well-known guest stars from the sci-fi community. Star Trek Continues did the same thing. Unfortunately, that episode was finished, but then they opted not to release it because of the whole Axanar thing, and the production company that James Colley owned ended up signing a deal with CBS very, very quickly to have their sets be an official Star Trek attraction. So they actually are able to do tours of their sets and it's it's a Star Trek attraction that's endorsed essentially by CBS Paramount. And I think part of that deal was that they essentially said they're not going to release any more of their shows. So that episode exists, as I understand. It will probably never likely see the light of day. Anyway, tangent. Uh, <laughs> anyway, she has a very unique way of talking. And, and so she played Natira in that episode, which is probably one of the better episodes of the third season. Well, that's all in well and good, but where is your Doctor Who reference? I couldn't find any Doctor Who references on this. I, I am so sorry. I probably could somewhere if I really, really dug deep. It, I, it eluded me. But I have more Star Trek references. So the director of this episode, Robert Shearer, is a well-known director. He directed episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. So he was very prolific uh, during that era of Star Trek. The writer, Bill Ballinger, is actually an incredibly accomplished uh, scriptwriter. He dates back to the days of old-time radio, has 81 radio script credits to his name. He's also a novelist. He wrote 30 books and uh, wrote uh, more than 150 television shows. Even though this episode may not be one of our favorites, well accomplished. He, he certainly had spent decades in radio and television uh, as well as being uh, published. I had to give him a special shout-out. I apologize. This is bad. I, I hate to be one of those that it's like reading IMDb as we're doing this and then throwing things in. But this is interesting, I think. Craig R. Baxley, have you heard of him? 
He his name's familiar to me. He directed a, a bunch of Stephen King movies during a chunk of time. He did uh, Rose Red and it was several that were done at that period of time. I can't remember what they are now. Anyway, I see is uncredited in the cast as well as somebody called Gary Baxley and Paul Baxley. And I just wonder if they're related and what usually if you're uncredited you've got some relation to somebody that's on the cast or crew. Probably a uh, that's, background character maybe or yeah, a supporting so character. Had to have been yeah they had to be related you would yeah, think. So that's interesting. I No I'm not familiar with the name. I, I don't know. And who else is uncredited? Creed Bratton from The Office. Now, if oh, you ever wow. watched that and you know Creed, he played, I do. He was the man entering laboratory. <laughs> so, anyway. Wow. Sorry. Early talk television about, role for him. Yeah, Very early. Talk about tangent. And I do want to say you said, although this wasn't one of our favorites, there are two of the, I guess, eight now that I've watched that are really are not my favorites by any means, even less a favorite than this one is the werewolf one that i mentioned and then there's one called they have been they are they will be which is sort of their ufo alien episode and that was was really disappointing particularly since this show is supposed to be such an influence on chris carter who made the x-files and of course that being ufos and aliens any series you're going to have episodes you like and don't like and the ones i like People may not, and they may like the ones that I don't. So that's all fine. <laughs> I am not a. I am not going to spread toxic fandom to bring us full circle. As we kind of begin to wrap this up, I mean, as Darren McGavin was not a fan of a lot of these episodes either. He was a much bigger fan of the movies. He felt that there was a poor quality of scripts. So there may be something to your looking at the second half of the, of the run and say, well, it doesn't seem that there's as many standout episodes. Might very well be the case. And apparently Darren McGavin probably would have agreed with you. He was tired of, of having to rework the scripts and doing the work of a producer. The show's ratings were, unfortunately, in the basement. And that's because they, they you know, the movies do so incredibly well, and then they bury the show by putting it on Friday nights. I don't think that's necessarily as much the case now because we live in a world where everything's on demand and everything's, you know, DVR'd. You watch it later. Nobody watches live television for the most part anymore. Everyone seems to record everything. But back in the day, you didn't have VCRs. You had to be at home watching it. And that kind of core audience typically were not going to be at home on a Friday night. Uh, They were going to be out at the movies or doing something. Star Trek was killed off that way by putting it on Friday nights in the third season. With that said, the ratings were bad, Darren McGavin was unhappy, and he asked to be released before the last two episodes were made. The network knew they were going to cancel the show anyway, and so they said, that's fine, they released him and just wrapped up the show. That's why it only has a 20-episode run, which seemed at least a couple episodes shorter of of an average run. Mm -hmm. Back then... Average runs of seasons would be anywhere from 22 to sometimes as much as 26 episodes, or even more in some cases. So a little shorter and uh, ended uh, a little bit earlier. And unfortunately, at the time, just seemingly was going to be kind of a one-and-done show until CBS picked it up. As we talked about, they didn't pick up the movies, and they had only 16 of the 20 episodes. 
four of the episodes were 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 kept because they had been re-edited into movies, which was kind of a common practice. The Planet of the Apes television series was re-edited into five movies so they could air them on a week-long ape week thing back in the day. The two movies were called The Demon and the Mummy and Crackle of Death. Those four episodes were never aired on the CBS Late Movie. Only after the CBS Late Movie played The Night Stalker for the last time, which was 1988, that The Night Stalker was eventually put into general syndication. Sci-Fi Channel picked it up in the 1990s, and they had the complete 20-episode run of the show, uh, including those four episodes that had not been seen since the 1970s. The two movies, I don't think you can find out there anymore. They were pulled from circulation circa 1990 when the show went back into syndication uh, after the CBS run. They included those two episodes, and, or those four episodes, so those two movies. Somebody probably has them somewhere out there, but they're, they're not part of any packages anymore. <laughs> they did include some deleted scenes, and they did include some new narration from Darren McGavin Hmm. to kind of help bridge the two episodes. That was kind of done with the Planet of the Apes. They, they, they did some, I think Roddy McDowell came back to play Galen and played an older Galen kind of introducing the movies to set up what we were seeing in in the movies. Since we talked about all the other actors, got to mention, of course, we talked a little bit about Darren McGavin. He, He was, you know, on Broadway, did the Mike Hammer series known for Christmas story. Darren McGavin, did come on the X-Files. Chris Carter asked him to play Kolchak, and he declined. Gosh, I wish he'd have, he would have played Kolchak. We lost Darren McGavin in uh, 19... Or, I'm sorry, 2006. He died at the age of 83 of heart disease. And I don't, we talked about this off, off mic. He did play in The Six Million Dollar Man, the very first pilot movie called The Six Million Dollar Man. He played Oliver Spencer a precursor to Oscar Goldman, although he was a bit more of an asshole. And he, he actually wanted to put Steve Austin into like a, a sleep mode and only wake him up whenever he was needed for missions. And Rudy Wells would say, that's not going to happen. He's not really a likable character, although by the end of the movie, he seemed like maybe he was softening up a little bit. Richard Anderson would play a much softer version, essentially, of that character that was renamed Oscar Goldman. Simon Oakland did a lot of TV work other than than Kolchak, but he did star in Psycho and Bullet, West Side Story, so he did have a few big movie appearances in minor roles. He died of cancer in 1983 at the age of 68. So unfortunately, another part of our our, our stars this, this month that uh, passed away at a far too young of an age. Much like the first two movies being available, this series is available on DVD for roughly $20. It's readily available. It's also available for streaming on NBC, which I thought was kind of weird. I don't I didn't find it anywhere else. Hmm. I didn't realize that NBC had series uh, on their on their app, but sure enough, they've got Colcheck on there. And I don't think you have to pay for it either. I think it's on Amazon Prime too. I know that it was at one oh, point. I didn't double, double check to see if it was okay. still was or not. It may be one of those things like the CW has the CW Seed where they have shows that aren't necessarily on the CW or had been on the CW but were picked up. At one time they had Constantine, which was actually an NBC show. 
anyway, it's out there. You can find it relatively easily. And I would recommend, even though we, we might not like every episode and uh, we liked one more than the other, the two we talked about, I think we would both highly recommend the series. It's a, it's a classic piece of television history. Uh, you've got Kolchak is played wonderfully by Darren McGavin, well worth $20 for a whole season of 20 episodes that I probably, safe to say that even though some of the episodes may not be our favorites, still classic in their own right and, and a lot better than some of the stuff we're getting fed today. Something to like in each of them, I would guess. Absolutely. That's about all I've got to say on yeah. Night Stalker. Yeah, me too. All right. <laughs> well, let's, uh, why did we take a break then? I guess that's what we do next. Yeah, so we're kind of looking at each other it's like, yes, yes, go on. Uh, all right, we're going to be back after this break. Next week on the CBS Late Movie, a werewolf is a deadly opponent for Darren McGavin as the Night Stalker. All next week on the CBS Late Movie. We are back with new business, which includes home video releases for the month of February, birthdays from the month of February, and anniversaries from the month of October. <laughs> no, movies that came out in February. So I got some different ones here in the home video releases just because I kind of wanted to and I had that prerogative. February 4th, Dr. Sleep comes out. And I mentioned that because we talked quite a bit about that in a previous episode. They are releasing a director's cut. How do you feel about that, Richard? I thought the movie was fine as it was. And sometimes a director's cut has, you put quotations around it because they maybe just take the deleted scenes and they cram them in and there's not really any purpose other than just doing that do you think we need a director's cut do you want to see it or you know are you happy with what we i got? guess it depends on on what it offers for example last night we watched et and close encounters of the third kind had an amazing sunny night double feature et had its original theatrical release and then it got re-released in the early 2000s i think and they they made some tweaks to it and they cgi'd guns out and, and put walkie talkies in and I, I from what i understood steven spielberg regrets having ever messed with it and now the the version that's been most recently released on blu-ray is the original theatrical version i think there's a few minor sound tweaks but the guns have been restored and it's basically as, as, as it was originally intended. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you got three versions to choose from. The original theatrical version, the special edition, which came out in theaters shortly after, and then the director's cut, which, as I you know try to compare the three, the director's cut seems to be the best of the three versions because it takes the best of the theatrical version the best of the special edition and essentially it's mostly the special edition but restores the things that they cut from the theatrical cut while keeping the you know uh they're going I, they revert back to the like the original ending and you know it, it gosh director's cuts can be a good thing or a bad thing and so it depends on how much the director was involved or is this the studio slapping the name director's cut on there and throwing in deleted scenes that may or may not make sense? I don't know. Yeah, I question the marketing of it. I mean, to me, it was fine as it was. But Maybe it didn't do so, well. It didn't do well. So do they think, okay, people are going to think this is better. But, you know, it, 
I don't know. I probably will watch it. It's one of my favorite movies from last year. I really enjoyed it. I wish that it would have got more love. I, you know, will definitely be adding that to my collection. And so when I revisit it, I'll revisit it watching the director's cut. I guess it remains to be seen whether or not you will be able to see the difference or not. Same day, uh, another modern horror movie, but I want to mention it. It's the remake of Rabid coming out from Shout Factory. So we have talked about Rabbit. I guess we did with uh, Genius and Greg on their yes. podcast. Uh, it, it's in our time range that we talk about, but uh, I'm, I, you know, I like to see remakes and compare and contrast. So Sometimes. I haven't heard much about it. I don't think it had much of a theatrical release. I, I'm, all, I'm, I'm good with remakes sometimes if it's, you know, case in point, Black Christmas came out at Christmas and came and went, and I didn't hear anybody say anything good about that movie other than people were saying, why was this made? Because it seemed like, you know, it, it was... Well, Richard, you're saying that because you're a man. It was made by a female director, and it it's it's a, from a woman's perspective. So you don't appreciate okay. it. Okay, well, I didn't see any women <laughs> praising it either online. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, yeah, I, I'm all for remakes, as you know, depending on the circumstance. Sometimes it's like, eh, leave well enough alone. Yeah. Rabbit is such a unique film from kind of a... That, a little bit of a gritty 70s feel to it yeah. sometimes leave leave it alone yeah. so yeah. all right back to our our real wheelhouse here then on uh, february 11th we have the beast and the magic sword from mondo macabro we were talking about that off mic i could swear i pre-ordered the special edition limited i don't think i ever got it unless it got lost in the move which could have happened i'm not sure that rod barnett said anything about getting his copy on Facebook. And I think that he would because when, what was the other one that came out? Was it Assignment Terror, right? Oh, uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, he. I think he commented when he got his copy of that. So I wonder if maybe there's been a delay in getting it released. It was mm. supposed to come out in December. Maybe, I haven't seen anybody talk about that online. Yeah. And I would think people would. And I wonder if maybe they've delayed the release to coincide with the wide release in, in hmm. February. That seems kind of odd. I don't yeah. know. Hmm. couple uh, obligatory Hammer movies from Shout on the 18th. Uh, this time we've got Rasputin the Mad Monk and X the Unknown. And then, have you ever heard of this movie? It's from 71. It's called The Light at the Edge of the World. No. It's Kino Lorber. It seems like there's always one I've never heard of. This sounds interesting, and I don't know that it's as much horror as it is a maybe a thriller or drama, but a ruthless pirate captures the keeper of a lighthouse in the most southern city in Argentina. His goal is obvious and horrific. He plans to control the lighthouse's signal in a way that the passing ships will be crushed on the rocks. Sounds a bit more like an adventure uh, thriller. Sort Kirk of. Douglas, Yul Brenner, Samantha Eggert. <laughs> wow. So, uh, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Kirk Douglas. Yeah. I, I remember reading about this one. This one was a film that people have talked about before, saying that they wanted it to be released. It had never, it, it hasn't seen the light of day mm. for. Quite a while, I think. You know, it's not even something that was like readily available on the black market circuit, so to mm. speak. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, Kirk Douglas. That that kind of jogged my memory mm. there. I remember people saying that it's really unique. Hmm. Kind of piqued my interest. Yeah. All right. 
some birthdays in February, uh, all related to people or movies we've talked about on the show, which is when you have 40 episodes, you can do that. We've been doing that lately. February 3rd of 1938, Victor Buono. February 4th, 1936, Gary Conway. I'm not even going to explain why. You know, people know. They've listened to the episodes. February 5th, 1941, David Selby. Quentin Collins himself. February 8th, 1932, John Williams, composer. I guess in terms of this podcast, Jaws might be the only thing that would fit. I think I can honestly say I don't know if Star Wars would be what it is without that John Williams score. Oh, I'm I so sp- glad that he made it to the yeah. last film. I was legitimately worried. He's getting up there in years. I don't know that he'll do another project maybe after this one. Certainly not as high profile. Hearing, Watching both E.T. And, and Close Encounters last night, the music is just phenomenal in each of those, especially E.T. Um, yeah, John Williams is just... He, he made... He makes movies, you know, really memorable just by his his uh, score, and, and I would agree with Star Wars. Yeah, so. and when I was watching The Rise of Skywalker, the one scene that I did get a little misty, if it's... I'm easily manipulated. It's the scene you would expect if you've seen it, you know, the big climactic scene. And that music swelled up, and that's just when it dawned on me. Number one, if you took that music out of that scene, I don't know that I would have had the same reaction. And then you just think about all the other movies and how big a part that was in the movie. Well, speaking of Star Wars and Cry, I'll totally own the fact that when the sh- the the shuttle blows up and and you you know at that point you think that Chewie's on board, they did it with Han. I'm like, oh my god, they just did that. And then the scene that really got me was when Chewie finds out that Leia's gone, and it's kind of in the background. But when you're seeing Chewie's reaction, man, that that hit me. And and you know, Mark Hamill's getting up there in years, and so is Harrison Ford, and the, it's that connection with childhood right you're these people that we grew up as kids going to the movies they're getting older and they're which they're, means we're getting older and then fortunately you know that's that's you know you think gosh I'm, I'm not that 10 year old kid anymore my you know celluloid heroes when i was 10 are now passing away and i'm thankful we got a chance to see for better or for worse harrison ford mark hamill and and uh, Carrie Fisher come back in these movies and you know we had a chance I'm not sure how involved Peter Mayhew was in in the movies before he passed but I know he was at least I think he was at least in some scenes mm. as Chewbacca before he was replaced and of course Kenny Baker is R2-D2 and, and Anthony Daniels making it through what 10 of the 11 movies and getting that scene as an X-Wing fighter uh, was a nice little extra thrown in, and, and sad to think that he is done with that character. He he, he said goodbye to it. Gosh, sadness. Uh, well, speaking of Harrison Ford, I caught the trailer for The Call of the Wild. Have you seen that? No. And I don't know how, this is terrible, I don't know my literature, I don't know how close it is to the Jack London novel, but <sighs> the dog is CGI. Yeah. And it just, I, I don't know, I, I'm sorry. This is the year of being positive. It just did not appeal to me. I had wished that they used a real dog. CGI is a wonderful thing. Uh, it allows us to to see things on screen that, that we'd never be able to see. But sometimes, 
let's pull back a little bit and go go traditional because there's just some things that they haven't quite mastered yet. I'm sure they will, uh, as we've talked about the the the, the eyes uh, on people sometimes just doesn't work. That was one of the things that threw me about Peter Cushing's, you know, CGI Peter Cushing uh, in Rogue One, is that in some of those scenes is just there's no life in the eyes of Tarkin or Cushing, and that pulls you out of the moment. Yeah, I know and what you're you say CGI can create things you've never seen before. You can see a real dog. There's no need to well, CGI. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's the thing is there's there's things like you know what. Get the dog on set. I get it. it. It's easier. It's cheaper. And honestly, that's probably why we don't have a lot of documentaries about films anymore. Because it's a bunch of people standing in front of green screens. And the magic of the movies isn't there when you see that. I mean, I get a respect for actors today because they're playing against things that aren't even there. But, um, yeah, come on. Get a real dog in there. There's dogs out there. <laughs> Poor dogs looking for work out in Hollywood. <laughs> Give them a job. Losing jobs to technology. Two other birthdays, real quick. Uh, February 10th, 1906, Lon Chaney Jr. And February 27th, 1910, Ms. Joan Bennett. You missed one. Well, I know I missed one, but I wasn't going to... Well, if we're talking about the same one, you know, I wasn't going to do like someone did in December. <laughs> well, I got to say, yes, you're celebrating a birthday. Aww. On the 16th of February. Are, are you still 39, or are you going to finally... No, I went 40. 40. We mentioned that earlier. I'm 40 okay. now. Yeah. So uh, I, I will say this. Yeah, happy birthday Thank to you. my partner in crime celebrating a, a birthday. Um, I don't know that we'll probably won't be in the same city. Not on the birthday, but I'll see you in February. So absolutely. So uh, we'll, we'll get a chance to celebrate. So. All right. Anyway. Anniversary. So send, those, send those birthday wishes mm-hmm. and... And uh, Jeff will put out his Amazon wish list for those wishing to give gifts. Cash is always acceptable. Anniversaries of movies that came out. Who Slew Auntie Rue came out in the UK on February 11th in 1971. The Stepford Wives, February 12th, 1975. The Body Snatcher, February 16th, 1945. February 16th. (laughs) Interesting, I noted this one in particular because it actually premiered in St. Louis, which is was interesting. Oh, Maybe you don't cool. see that very often. No. Uh, also, I'll just do a quick plug for Time Shifters podcast, their most recent episode. They talked about The Body Snatcher, and that was a, a good episode as usual. February 24th, 1968, Koreniko, and February 24th, 1970, Assignment Terror. You know, you, you mentioned uh, Time Shifters, and I want to give a shout-out to... I'm, I'm playing serious catch-up on podcasts. I have been so far behind on my podcast for, like, ever and a day. No matter how hard I try, I get partially almost caught up on one, and then I realize now I'm behind on everything else. And this is not inclusive because, folks, I'm still behind on many of them. But I want to give a shout-out to the uh, Memiverse Monthly Audiocast. Christopher Mim kicking off 2020 on a very positive note. It was great to hear. He's got some good things coming out this year. And uh, by gosh, by golly, I'm going to be at those premieres this year. I want to give a uh, shout out to Monster Kid Radio. I'm like one episode behind, I think, on that uh, with their Dan Sember. So there's some great stuff going on over there. Yeah, I mean, just there's a lot of great podcasts out there uh, that I'm, I'm getting caught up on. 
and just want to shout out. And of course, we've got a lot of friends who do podcasts, so I am not including all of them. You're not being left out uh, intentionally. I'm just working my way through the backlog. That's interesting. I'm in a somewhat reverse situation. I've been in the car so much, I am actually, well, I'm not caught up now. I mean, they keep coming fast and furious, but I was at a point so caught up with my podcast that I actually listened to episodes of Serial. Oh, wow, yeah, you know, yeah. So that, which for me got me into podcasts, was listening to that whole uh, Adnan trial. Anyway, so I, I tried a couple of new ones out and uh, back to the backlog. Need another trip. All right, what is going on with you, Richard? You mentioned Memiverse podcast. Are you still a part of that? You missed uh, <laughs> this episode. I, uh, yeah, so by the time. Everyone's listening to this one. I'm assuming it's probably going to be coming out after the February edition. Yes, I did miss January because mostly because I was sick. And uh, honestly, my brain wasn't firing on all cylinders and I couldn't come up with an idea for a topic. But uh, no, I yes, I'm still continuing with Kansas City Crypt. And uh, gosh, I hope by the time this episode comes out in February that I have made good on my promise to do some reviews for Dread Media. I've had three movies that I've been wanting to sit down and do, and, and the holidays came up, and then I got sick. So thank you, Des. I know you probably don't listen to the show, but Des, thank, thank you for being so patient. He's just always like, grace. he's thankful, right? You know, grateful to get anything I send him. I've got several reviews that I've been wanting to do. Man, I hope that I, I, I'm going to be getting to those, uh, and I apologize for being behind on that. Kind of quiet post Halloween, right? I, you know, I did my usual countdown to Christmas in December. Kind of covered a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Not really horror centric, but you know, I covered my usual reviews of A Christmas Carol. I did see the 2019 version with Guy Pierce. One of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. Nothing redeeming about that movie, and that says a lot because I can usually find something redeeming. That was three hours, and it was... I, I, I talked about it online, and I know that some other people did see it and had pretty much the same thoughts I did. However, I did see comments of people online who loved it because it was horrific, and they were looking for something. They, they don't like the sweet, you know, redemption aspects of A Christmas Carol. They like the more horrific elements. That's not what Charles Dickens wrote about, and when you do an adaptation of A Christmas Carol... And Scrooge, you give background on Scrooge that involved him getting abused by his father and sexually molested by the the schoolmaster and sexually compromising Mrs. Cratchit. Uh, and Mrs. Cratchit apparently having the power to summon spirits. And then there's no redemption with Scrooge at the end. He didn't want to ask for forgiveness and there's no happiness at the end. Cratchit quits and goes somewhere else, and there is no reunion with his nephew. All of what should be in in the adaptation and what Charles Dickens wrote was left out. So I covered that on Facebook. I did not cover it on the blog because I didn't want to give it, and I've given it more time than it deserves. As 2020 has started, got some ideas, kind of starting a little bit slow, um, mostly because I've been getting into gear with some changes in the work front. I'm having to work back in the office a few days of the week. That said, 
I've already got lined out what we're going to be doing over the summer months. We did Marx Brothers last year, which is non-horror related, but it was a lot of fun. We're going to be doing Laurel and Hardy this year. Doing some Godzilla and some Sherlock Holmes this year for the for the blog, because those are two films, uh, series that we're going to be, Carl and I are going to be visiting. Also, I see some Santo down the, down the road. That's definitely... Fewer films in 2020 because I'm concentrating on some television, but I think some of the stuff that I'm going to be watching will be stuff that I'll include on the blog. Not a whole lot happening just yet, at least as we record this, but uh, as we get a little farther into spring, things are going to kind of kick into gear, including uh, a Vincent Price month in May. There's more Vincent Price films to cover, and we're going to be covering uh, at least four or five of them in May. What about you? Well, I'm gearing up um, after taking a little couple month break with the move and everything. So on ClassicHorrors.club, I expanded the scope of it to basically add another decade. And I write on there, I haven't posted yet, but I have an explanation in the about section about why I decided to do that and all that. I won't go into that now, but I encourage you to check it out and read it. I'm not going to stop doing any of the ones that I've been doing, but I am just extending it because the 80s were part of my formative years. I have never included them in the past because it seemed like at the time I started Classic Horrors, that's all everyone, anyone was doing. And so that's why I wanted to do the older. But now I just, I have some, I want to do some of those. So I'm going to. And it's 40 years ago. Exactly. It's like, those are classic now. Yeah, they are. So, jeez. Thank you again for reminding me of my mortality. <laughs> and, you know, this time, I, I I have been such a slave to a schedule, you know, like Monday, movie of the week, Tuesday, you know, I don't think I'm going to be as strict. My fear for not doing that is that I'll slack off and fade away and not do it. I want to do it. But when you get to a, a schedule... I think you start start. It becomes something you have to do, and it you make you lose some of the joy. Yeah, so yeah. that that that's uh, gearing back up. Uh, DC Comics guy. I pretty much decided the next wave is going to be uh, the Wonder Woman without her powers. It's we've got the Wonder Woman movie coming up. I don't know if they have picked up the original numbering with Wonder Woman, but there's a big issue coming out seven fifty or eight fifty, a big super anniversary issue. So Wonder Woman. It's kind of on the, on the mind, and I have, I think I've got one left uh, to get, but I'm going to talk about that series. And then I did start a new blog simply for those odds and ends, kind of like you did with Casey Cinephile, but this may be anything from what I had for lunch yesterday to whatever. This is where I posted my top movies of the decade, uh, my little editorial, or what you will, about toxic fandom and... You know what I realized, Richard? There's the big talk about physical media and how if it's streaming, you never know how long it's going to be there. It just dawned on me. All the things I ever wrote for Downright Creepy or Boom Howdy, they're gone. They're not anywhere now because those sites are shut down. So the only way if I wanted to preserve those would be to have my own website. So when I did my top... 10 movies of the decade if I had written a review for them on another site I have included them on the reaction shot and linked them 
So this may become my depository eventually, and maybe I'll be adding those old reviews. Do you save? I do. You, okay, that, I, that's something I do. Is like I don't save a hundred percent of everything. Sometimes if I do, like I don't save like when we do a link to a podcast appearance or something. I don't save that. But any review I do or any article I do, I always save, you know. Yeah, so. yeah I always do it in, in Word. And, and the thing I sometimes do is edit once I've put it in. And so if I now post a Word copy, I may have, there may be slight differences. Same here. But, and, you know, even uh, some my, of... My, my idea is that someday there will be a book <laughs> yes. of all of my works. And there I would have go. to go back and re-edit them anyway. Yes. So that's why. Well, so what do you... Here's a, a, a conundrum... I posted a review maybe I wrote eight years ago. Context has changed. Do I rewrite it to make it mm. fresh and new? Or I have not taken that approach because that's a whole nother can of worms. But it, what I'll do is post it as the original date that I posted it so that hopefully in a, a timeline, you know, it will have, the comments will have been appropriate for that time. I did a little bit of that this past Christmas with the Cat Down to Christmas. There was a couple of the posts were posts that I had done previous. But I thought, well, I did them quite a few years ago, and so I kind of tweaked them a little bit, found that 75% of the YouTube links no longer worked. Yeah, I was able to find them because their old-time radio is easily found, but I was able to... So I had to change links and stuff, so... But, you know, I, I, I did a little bit of that, but I even for something as simple as that, there had to be some adjustments um, a couple of my comments I looked at and I'm like, eh, I don't like that the way that word. So I changed it. So anyway, yeah, I'm yeah. just afraid that's a rabbit hole, but it is. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? So anyway, sorry, that's way more than you wanted to know. Why don't you tell us what we're going to talk about next time? I didn't forget this time. No, you did not. You know, we had talked about doing something with the Invisible Man because there's a new version of the Invisible Man coming out in late February. I'm not thrilled by what I've seen so far, but I'm still open-minded about it. I'm just very hesitant. We couldn't quite determine what we wanted to do. We, we we're going to be doing The Invisible Man somewhere, and I think in the near future, but we don't want to just rattle off three movies. I think we're going to put a little bit of Maybe some extra thought into it and, and maybe do some some different things with it. So if you've got suggestions, maybe there's something out there we don't know, let us know. Um, I'm thinking right now of a radio adaptation of The Invisible Man. Do you remember Alien Voices? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, a big thing that they would... Uh, it was like with uh, a lot of the Star Trek actors, Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner... They did adaptations of, of these works, typically in front of a live audience, and released them. They did some specials on the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, I'm fairly certain they did an adaptation of The Invisible Man. Mm. That might be something fun to throw in, a little something different. We've done some radio you know, adaptations. That was never broadcast on radio. But anyway, if you have some suggestions along those lines, let us know, because we want to do that sometime in the near future. For March, we are going to go with... A celebration of the films of Lionel Atwill, uh, celebrating his birth on March 1st, 1885. He died at a relatively young age, 30s and 40s. He didn't go on into the 50s, unfortunately. So uh, the time span, you know, typically when we've done this, we, we have kind of a 
early and middle and later part of their career. We're kind of doing everything within about a nine-year time span. But I think we picked some good ones. We're going to be doing a couple films from 1933. We're going to be doing Murders in the Zoo and Secret of the Blue Room, which is a film uh, that doesn't get seen on television, doesn't really get talked about, and I think that'll be fun. And then another film that for a long time was kind of ignored by Universal, 1942's The Mad Doctor of Market Street. Uh, It did finally get released on a Turner Classic Movies set on DVD, and just recently, within the last, what, three to six months, got released on a uh, Universal Blu-ray set. So those are the films we'll be covering. That is your homework. We will be uh, covering that for our March episode. Two of the three of those are first-time viewings for me, so I'm excited about that. I've seen Murders in the Zoo several times. It's been quite a while since I've seen the other two, so I'm looking forward to visiting those as well. Very good. Any other new business? Uh, I guess just say where they can find us. You can find me at kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Where can they find you? Classichorrors.club, DC Comics Guy, or thereactionshot.com. That's so, all I've got. All right. Well, then we are going to close with a song. It's a cover song of uh, of a Kinks song, All Day and All of the Night. I'm sure you all know it, but it is by a group called The Stranglers, and it's from their 1990 album, The Stranglers' Greatest Hits, 1977 to 1990, available on Apple Music. Thank you for listening. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next month. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> And